It won't happen. What won't happen? Your vacation. My vacation won't happen? Uh-huh. Why not? Because. What, you think it's like the, the, the cosmic joke? Is that it? You're right. It's a perfect setup. Here we are. We're in the dead of Alaskan winter. It's one bleak frozen hour of sunlight a day. I'm planning a trip to a tropical paradise. This is a trip that I really want, a trip that I desperately need to take. So naturally, something's going to stop me from going. Right? Uh-huh. Right. And of course, the one thing we all should have learned as children is if there's something that you want with all of your heart, with every fiber of your being, you're certain not to get it. One of the things that I really wanted as a child, like really, really wanted, was the Nickelodeon Gak Splat slime toy. Are you familiar with that? That sounds so familiar. Uh, I'm imagining it's something like Silly Putty. Describe it for us. Yeah, so it's like kind of a Silly Putty substance that they had marketed off of Nickelodeon slime. And I really wanted it, but my parents would never get it for me because they were afraid it would stick on the carpet and like ruin it. So I never got to have that. Uh, did you ever have like a toy like that when you were you were a child? Yeah, I mean that definitely that's something that uh, I definitely would have wanted. Like I, I remember wanting this, but there wasn't a toy that you like you really wanted, but you never got uh, that. I mean that I never got Gak. Um, there's a I can think of a lot now, like uh, Stretch Armstrong. I never had one as a kid. I actually got one a couple years ago. Finally, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of that. Like now, I just buy the things that I didn't have when I was a kid that I thought was cool. <laughs> well, unfortunately for Joel, he does not get what he wants even as an adult. Yeah, spoiler alert, he does not get his vacation. Uh, as as Marilyn suspect, it, it's not going to happen. I, I thought this scene was really funny because it's almost as if Joel realizes he's in a TV show. Like he knows something bad is about to happen. It's the perfect setup for <laughs> an episode. Very, very expositional too. You know, he explains... Uh, you know, here in the beginning about the sort of this, they're in this deep, dark winter, you know, how, uh, you know, we had an episode before that was like all sunlight and now this is all nighttime. Yeah. I felt like we had visited this plot line before where like, um, the nighttime and daytime weren't sinking together. Uh, I had forgotten that the other one was just daylight though. This one is just nighttime. Yeah. That was, um, midnight sun. It's like the second or third episode of this season. Uh, and here we are, Northern Lights. Charles, wh- what are we talking about? Okay, so what we're talking about here is Northern Exposure, 1990s CBS television sitcom series. My name is Charles. I'm joined here always with my co-host, Lee. Yeah, my name is Lee, and uh, I- I'm sort of a veteran fan of the show. Uh, Charles, I would say you're you're a fan of the show as well, but what's interesting is every episode that we cover here that's your first time watching it, I mean, obviously, we're in season four. You're pretty comfortable with it. You you know, you kind of know what you might expect, or you you've you've come to grow with the characters, you know, or understand their growth. But uh, this is the Northern Overexposure podcast, and uh, you heard our names, Lee and Charles, the hosts. Uh, another thing that we like to do on this podcast is uh, usually by the end of the episode, we'll invite on a friend, someone who has never seen the show before as a way to sort of expand the reach of the show, like get an outside perspective, uh, put it in front of someone who has never heard of it before, uh, expand the audience. But also, you know, we're, we're talking about this show that is now, you know, over 30 years old almost. So, so, so it's a lot about analyzing it in, in today's perspective. 
yeah, we're overanalyzing the show using whatever we can scrap by together to create a cohesive uh, meaning behind it right there. Uh, for today's episode, I got to say that I felt like it was it just my imagination or was there a lot of dropped plot lines on this one? Oh, you mean like uh, things that, that kind of just like ended without uh, without too much... Uh hurrah like at the you know not a lot of closure maybe um yeah uh i felt like there was like two plot lines that didn't have like a proper resolution to them yeah maybe you're on to something uh i'll say this is probably a very um this is a, probably a fan favorite episode i feel like northern lights uh it was one of the episodes that was released on like laserdisc and and video uh before the dvds came out so i imagine you know Audiences in the '90s may, you know, may have bought a copy of this, but even today, I think uh, when you ask people on like Facebook or on fan sites uh, what your favorite episode of Northern Exposure is, um, I feel like I, I've I've even seen like you know the the ending of this episode ends with like a monologue from Chris. I've been seeing that clip of uh, the ending of this episode, a clip of that being shared about uh, Twitter a lot, uh, kind of recently. So uh, I think it is a fan favorite, but. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe there are some loose ends here. Um, before we really dive in, uh, I mentioned the name of the episode is Northern Lights. It's the 18th episode of season four, directed by Bill Dahlia, which is, uh, <laughs> I thought that sounded really familiar. I don't think he's directed another episode of Northern Exposure, though he, uh, he has done a lot of directing in TV. But he's also the father of Chris Dahlia. Do you know this, uh, do you know the comedian? <laughs> Uh yeah, uh, podcaster. <laughs> he, <laughs> how do I how do I say this in a polite manner? <laughs> it, it, I, oh wait, sorry, I'm looking at his Wikipedia. Sexual misconduct allegations. <laughs> I think that's what you, yeah, this is kind of recent. It was 2020, I guess, in 2021. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I guess like we're, he's in like a tough situation, uh, most likely brought on by himself. <laughs> I don't want to be judge, jury, executioner here, but if you're, you know, it's just best not to hang out with him. <laughs> don't don't hang out with this guy. Um, so yeah, that, it's that guy's dad. Oh hey, he directed a episode of The West Wing, or at least I don't know, maybe a couple episodes, but at least one episode of The West Wing. I'm just looking at a uh, Bill Daly, his father's. Um, you know, filmography. Yeah, I knew that his father had, he had connections in the Hollywood industry, hence why he was able to be his son. I mean, he could grow up to be a comedian because you oftentimes need, number one, financial stability, and number two, connections. So both of those came together and he was able to rise to the uh, success that he had. Right. Uh, the writers for this episode, we've got Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. You know, they're frequently featured as writers in this TV show. I want to say they're even like, you know, they must be part of the writing room, you know, the execs, the producers, uh, very heavily involved in the shape of this show. At least I remember I would always see their names flash on a lot of episodes. And finally, the air date, March 1st, 1993. So there you have it. We were just opening with the soundbite from Joel. I believe that was actually the sort of the opening of the episode. Which is interesting. I guess we can talk about for a second. Joel is like driving his truck at the middle of the night, seemingly. Uh, there are people walking around, you know, and this is like a small town. And he pulls up to his office, um, you know, past some people walking across the street. And of course, it's revealed, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, it, it's not nighttime. It's like six in the morning or something. Or or maybe it's, I don't remember what time it was, but basically it's the start of the day. It sh there should be daylight Turns out it's sort of the uh, 
the antithesis of like the midnight sun episode that we were talking about. Right. It looks like there's only sun for about 40 minutes, give or take in um in the timeline in sicily alaska and like we said in the earlier clip joel is hoping to get a vacation time which according to him is stipulated in the contract that he signed and i have a like what i'm confused about is how concrete that was like is joel just exaggerating that it was in a contract and that it could be negotiated or transferred into something else of uh, a value or was it like strictly written that he had two weeks vacation in bold? It could not be misinterpreted any other way. I wish they would have went into that because if it's that way, then I kind of feel really bad for him at the end of the episode. I feel really bad for Joel. We'll, we'll talk about it. I do feel really bad for him. Uh, I think he, he has a good turn, but when I, when I think about the episode as a whole, it's messed up, man. I think I, I just feel bad for him. But I'm actually really curious to see what our guest might think about, uh, you know, if they feel bad for Joel or not. Because I feel like a lot of times uh, newcomers to the show, if they're watching it for the first time, often find Joel to be pretty obnoxious and grating, abrasive. So maybe maybe a newcomer, you know, might not really sympathize here. Um, but I wanted to touch on uh, something you just said. Yeah, it's it's you're right. There there's no I think the whole argument between Joel wanting to maintain his vacation days and the state of Alaska denying it, it seems like the state of Alaska has a lot of good uh or they they at least give their reason, but for Joel, you're right. He doesn't like state his like the sentence in the contract. Like we don't really know what the terms were. Except obviously like you know, everyone is deserves a vacation. Any any worker should get a vacation. So I think that's really what uh, Joel's plank is here. He's like, I want to fight for the working man and working woman. It's like my duty because if they're coming for me, they're going to come for you one day or, or something like that. Right. Uh, we can talk about that once we delve more into Joel's plotline. But yeah, let's talk about what's going on with the rest of the town right here. So it looks like Bernard is back at the helm of K-Bear because Chris is going through another artistic impulse, which seems to come whenever there is like a uh, like a change in the atmosphere, like whether it is like lack of sunlight or lack of nightlight. That seems like that's something that overcomes Chris right here. And he recommends heading to the brick to weather out this storm and uh try to weather through the temptation of suicide, which is like really <laughs> dark that he talks about on air. Well, he says like, if you've got your gun, like be sure to lock your gun cabinet or like put your gun somewhere else. Like, cause you know, don't let temptation, uh, I, I guess cause you, you know, you go a little kooky. Uh, Joel talks about it later. It's like seasonal. Uh, what does he call it? Sad. I don't remember what it stands for. Seasonal, yeah, like uh, seasonal affective disorder. Something like, yeah, 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 I think that's it. Uh, things like that. You know, you're kind of, you're not in the right mental state because uh, you just aren't getting that sunlight. Uh, all those nice, what is that, vitamin D from sun? I'm sure there's like lots of great benefits of seeing the sun. So if you're like going through an entire cold winter without any sun, it could be it could be hell. Um, but yeah, go, going to the brick, you know, you recommend just go to the brick Clear your head. I think the he mentions that the brick is open twenty four seven during this period, and uh, they're giving out free chocolate. Like so, I imagine like like hot chocolate. I imagine, but we do see. I think the very next scene at the brick that it's not just hot chocolate. Like all the dishes, 
Like there's so many desserts that are all chocolate, you know? And I guess chocolate- right. Sorry, I was gonna say chocolate is like the, it's I think Bernard's has mood elevation. So like chocolate is like a serotonin boost or something. Yeah, it's like a little thing to help boost your mood, make you a little bit more happier right there. And we see in the shot in the brick, like it's filled with, uh, it looks like donuts, muffins, Hershey's <laughs> chocolate kisses, chocolate balls, I, I wanna say, I can't really tell in there. And it looks like that Shelly is running it by herself because Holling has decided to hibernate. Yeah, apparently Holling hibernates is a thing during the winter and Ruthann, uh, you know, Shelly is like talking to Ruthann during this and Ruthann's like, yeah, like she recalls like another, just like that this has happened before for varying lengths of time. Like in certain years, it might be longer, like it might've been the longest hibernation. I can't exactly remember. Uh, I was more focused on, Ruth Ann uh, squirting ketchup onto a napkin. What is she doing with that ketchup? She's she's trying to find the perfect shade of red. At least, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say perfect, but but the um, the appropriate shade of red for her painting. She's painting a field of poppies. I believe uh, Shelley suggests cocktail sauce. <laughs> yeah, she's trying to find a vibrant red so that she can get a field of red poppies. Now, poppies, which are known for their set of the properties, have always been symbolized as eternal sleep or death. In fact, Lieutenant Colonel John McRae's World War I poem, In Flanders Fields, immortalized a red poppy as a flower of remembrance for death. And Remembrance Day, which celebrates the end of the First World War, is often casually called Poppy Day. In the West, red poppies usually mean remembrance, and in the East, they symbolize passionate love and success. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Ruth Ann is painting poppies since, you know, the eternal sleep motive is being found in this eternal night. Welcome to the flower shop. Uh, Welcome to yeah. the flower shop. <laughs> yeah, hauling is hibernating. It totally fits. I, I definitely, you know, the more and more that you point this out, Charles, I think there's somebody involved in the production of this show that knows like all that flower language, you know? Um, yeah, poppies, sleep. And then Bernard was just talking about the eternal sleep, I guess like offing yourself, which yeah, still that's a little, I still can't get over that. Uh, but yeah. Also important in this scene, which involves Bernard, is that he meets up with a new uh, townsfolk. I, I don't really know how to describe them, but he meets a homeless vagrant by the name of Lance Briggs. Uh, Lance Bristol, Bristol. Bristol. Lance Bristol, yeah. This kind of vagrant, uh, new character for the show, new in town. Uh, he just slumps up to the bar at the brick, and uh, I believe Dave is helping Shelly. I can't remember if it's Shelly or Dave who takes his order, but they offer coffee. It's like 40 cents for coffee. All he has is, um, he's like, what can I get for $2.24? Um, he just gets like a bowl of cream of wheat. But Bernard is fascinated by this character, and starts up a chat, and eventually, like he'll he throws some cash to uh to Lance Bristol for for a uh, he's like you got to try the cake, try some chocolate cake. Yeah, got to try some of that blackout cake right there. I thought what was really interesting in this scene is that Lance describes himself as a hobo. Uh, there's actually a distinction between a hobo, a tramp, and a bum. Hmm. Uh, a tramp is someone who only works when forced to, and a bum is someone who doesn't work at all. A hobo is a traveling worker. So mm. of the three, it kind of sounds like the best or at least the one that's like most noble. For Yeah, uh, right according there. to society or whatever. Yeah. Right. And, 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 which is funny though, because Lance Bristol is offered a job later and turns it down. Yeah, yeah. I if thought that was really fascinating right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I guess uh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Go ahead. 
I don't know if you've seen this, but there's an episode in season one of The Mad Men where they go into a flashback episode of Don Draper. And in that episode, there is a hobo featured prominently in it. And he travels to Don Draper's home and teaches him about the hobo code. Have you seen this episode? Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Mad Men, but I've certainly seen like the first season. And I remember this episode because they they talk about that like hobo code. I forget like what how it applies in that episode, but uh, I did I did think that was like super fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I tried looking more into that. So for people who don't know, the hobo code supposedly was something that hobos would mark onto a residential area to tell other hobos who was living in this home. So for example, a triangle with hands would signify that the homeowner has a gun, whereas a horizontal zigzag would signify they have a barking dog. But Unfortunately, I don't think there's like a real documented case of this uh, that people. Ah. Look, yeah, people were looking into this, and it seems like it might have been something just to. It seems like it might have been just something that they wanted to do to spice up the life of hobos. Like it's a fabrication to make them more like mythological and being like, mm. look at these people. They're like live outside the system. They have their own code and they have their own <laughs> ethics and all that. Um, so it's not entirely proven right there. Yeah, and I imagine things like that are so, uh, it's like by rote, you know, it's not really written down anywhere, so it's just shared by a select group of few, like a, like just, just a few people maybe know it, and so maybe it's hard to say how far that might translate, if it were real, and yeah, maybe it's just a complete fabrication just to make, uh, for good storytelling, I guess. One thing I did think was cool about Bernard's fascination with homelessness, or I guess hobo, because uh, actually that is a specification. Uh, you know, you said Lance, uh, this this hobo character, uh, prefers the term hobo, and Bernard states, uh, yeah, hobo, like it implies a life choice instead of a state of being. You know, homeless would be without a home. That's your state of being. But I was going to say, I thought it was cool. Bernard mentions, uh, well, he mentions a few things, but the one that le- leapt out at me was uh, nail soup which I had never heard of, but I had heard of like stone soup. So I imagine it's like the same, it's like a variation on that story. Are you familiar with like stone soup or nail soup? Yeah, is stone soup the one about the, uh, not a fairy tale, but like, it's like a like a story passed down from other yeah, people. like a, uh, and, fol- a folk story. Yeah, yeah, a folk story. Isn't it about like, uh, it's a poor town, they don't have anything to eat, and then somebody has the bright idea to put a stone into a pot of water and he says like it's stone soup and they're like well don't you need something else to go with it i have some onions and then like he adds onions and then they go to the next person they're like oh well, like you know couldn't you use some uh couldn't you use some uh celery and they're like yeah sure and they add celery and they go to the next person and then they keep adding on more and more stuff and then like the the whole moral of the story is that like you know together you can um you feed a village yeah it, yeah very much so that's the story it's like uh you know someone kind of tricks everyone into like pitching in. They're like, yeah, I'm going to make the best food you've ever tasted, stone soup. And they're like, oh, I can't believe that. That's not going to taste good. It's like, trust me, like you're going to, you won't believe it. Uh, they do, they start with the stone and somehow convince people to keep adding things uh, bit by bit. So nail soup, I guess, is the is a variation of that or, or that kind of story. But I would almost worry that nails, uh, I guess, I mean, stones might be unhealthy, like if they could leach things out of them. But I, I wonder if like nail, like a rusty nail in your soup, that would be kind of gross. Oh God. <laughs> I actually do think that's very interesting on a subtext level because 
if we're going by the story that I just said, it's implying that if the village, quote unquote village, came together, then there wouldn't be anybody that was suffering. Like everyone would be able to pitch in and help everyone else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it definitely, yeah, I, I can see why Bernard uh, connects that story with uh, this character, Lance, like this hobo. Well, we're kind of like into the episode proper. What storyline should we pick to start with first? I guess we can stick with Lance because we're already on him right there. Yeah, let's see. I think the next time we see Lance is, uh, it's actually during one of Bernard's K-Bear monologues. You know, I think Bernard is musing about, uh, oh, it started raining. (laughs) Sorry, might pick up on the recording, but uh, (laughs) Bernard is, uh, Musing about like this idea, why this question, why do we hold an instinctual repugnance towards the homeless? Uh, Bernard argues that there should be no rational reason for like why we would be um, uh, repelled by homeless people. Uh, he says, I could be Lance, Lance could be me. So our response uh, to homeless people should be empathy, you know. But throughout this, Maurice uh, sees, and I guess so does Bernard, they, they're watching Lance rifle through some trash like across the street and Maurice completely doesn't agree with this sentiment uh, I think he's even like he walks into the uh, the booth and talks with Bernard when, when he goes off air right uh, Maurice is an individual that wants to create and rule and he wants to make sure that his town is working at 100% efficiency he doesn't want anything that would ever derail it or make it look unpretty so the sight of this homeless man you know makes him infuriated right there. And then the next time we see Lance, uh, he's toting around a cardboard sign. It says that he's a veteran. I can't actually remember the full message, but you know, obviously veteran is on the sign. Uh, it's sort of like he's just kind of walking down Main Street or some road and he, he winds up uh, sitting next to Chris on like some pallets or something. And he pops a beer. He's got like a can of beer in the brown paper bag. And Chris and Lance are sitting together, um, staring at Chris's uh, sculpture that he's working on. Um, I kind of feel like Lance, treat like he might be reading Chris as like a fellow vagrant or something, you know, because he's, uh, they seem very comfortable together. I think Chris even like drinks a sip of the, of Lance's beer in this scene. Yeah. I think that it's played for comedy a little bit because he thinks that Chris is a fellow homeless person right there. And I don't know if Chris picks up on it or not. It's not made entirely clear. But yeah, uh, I think that them drinking beer is kind of neat right there. Um, I I think there's a lot of that theme in this episode where there's a lot of food and drinks being shared. Mm. And we can see that Chris is empathizing with Lance right here drinking his Miller Lite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's funny. I I was reading Moose Chick uh, entry on this. Uh, I think it was Moose Chick, but they... Talk about, uh, you know, how light is a big theme of this episode. And they even quote that that scene. I know it's spelled differently, L-I-T-E, Miller Light. But uh, I get, you know. Oh, right? it's, nice. That's maybe a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but for sure, yeah. You can you can, t- nah, can toss like that it. in there. Yeah. Um, I do want to play, this isn't really pertaining to Lance, but... It's more of like Chris's storyline, but I want to play the sound bite since we're on the scene. So this is a uh, their conversation as they're sitting in front of the sculpture. You believe that? What do you mean? When you look at it, do you believe it? Oh, not really. Of course you don't. What was I thinking? I keep tearing it apart. I put it back together. 
It just doesn't work. I mean, I never had a solstice like this before, you know? Usually I'm focused, I'm clear, you know, the piece, it just, it flows. Yeah. Last year in Neo-Gothic Ice Palace, Lake Eagle, year before that, Metal Cocoons, I took an entire acre of spruce, I wrapped it in tinfoil. Is that right? That's right. Amazing. So, yeah, you were mentioning before, Charles, how, you know, Chris normally does some sort of uh, artistic endeavor during these seasonal events. Uh, He's kind of, uh, as it turns out, you know, he's got a bit of, like, artist block, you know, he's, he, it's not flowing through him. As he says, he mentioned some of his past projects and, uh, that second one, he says he, he, he took an entire acre of spruce and wrapped it in tinfoil. What? That's that like, that's so much tinfoil. Like, please tell me that was like recycled or <laughs> so expensive. Well, we weren't given the size of the tree, were we? Well, he says an acre. So that's oh, a lot shoot, of land. Right. Yeah. I don't know how yeah, big the wait. spruce was, I guess, but even if you just had tiny little trees. He says he wrapped oh, it God. wrapped it. So I imagine he like a wrapped it because I think he says something about like cocoons, like metal cocoons. So I'm imagining he would wrap a tree in tinfoil. Like just wrapping one tree, even if it's not like a very big tree, would have to take up like a whole, maybe close to a whole roll of tinfoil. I don't know. That's a lot. That seems very wasteful. And <laughs> not like Chris. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's an interesting piece. Um, obviously, it's falling into the category of modern art right there. Uh, Chris's current piece, you're saying? No, no, no. The, the, oh, the, the, the spruce foil. tree. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, speaking of... The, this one... Yeah, what do you think about... So we know the end result of his um, sculpture, but but <laughs> I just realized like... Okay, spoiler alert, like, you know, he uses a lot of lights. He figured that's like, that's his uh, break that he gets. And he's like, oh yeah, I need to just put a bunch of lights on this. What would it have been without that? Like, what do you think this sculpture is? Uh, I actually have my own thoughts on that, cool. but I want to delve more into that once we okay, start talking that's about Chris's right. We're still line. talking about Lance. So let's, that was just a little sneak peek. Stay tuned. Uh, this is just Lance you kind of absorbing Chris here, but I think that's about it for that scene, right? Right. The next scene that we see Lance in is that he's camped out in his uh, little fire that he made outside, and Maurice kind of strolls along and kind of hassles him because he's suspecting that Lance is masquerading as a veteran in order to get sympathy from the townsfolk to donate to him. And it turns out that he actually is a veteran of the Vietnam War. He gives him his rank, gives him his number, tells him what he did when he was over there, and that seems to buy Maurice his respect. Though I find it, it, it falls in line with Maurice's character completely. Like, Maurice wouldn't respect you unless you had a respectable job beforehand, but it also seems like he, if we were speaking on a, like a moral level, he still should have treated them just as well if he was any other human being. Well, oh, right, yeah, of course. Um, it takes that just to make Maurice like sort of change uh, his opinion. But yeah, very believable. Like, you know, if it was uh, a trick from Lance, like he would have to be very, (laughs) he would have have to have known several veterans, you know? So this, cause, cause of the information that he gives, I think uh, Maurice himself is a veteran and, and uh, you know, Maurice says a few things, but he, Maurice himself even gets it wrong. Like Lance has to kind of correct him a couple on a couple things like, uh, certain divisions or in cert- the certain uh, geographical locations and such. Um, but yeah, Maurice, Maurice uh, takes it upon himself to start gathering, uh, gathering some stuff for, for Lance. I guess before that he gives 
um, Lance like a wad of cash, uh, like when he's leaving the scene. And uh, he says, Semper Fi. Uh, cash, he says, have, have this money, get yourself like a hot meal. Semper Fi. And Lance responds with, Oorah. Right. Then the next scene goes, deal with Maurice, where he's trying to rally the townsfolk to donate some goods for him. You know, some clean clothes, uh, maybe a razor or something. And the next scene that follows it, because these are continuous scenes right here, kind of confuses me tonally. Because, like I was saying previously, Maurice is trying to get the town to help Lance. So he's going to get some more supplies, maybe make sure that he doesn't live outside in a cold winter. And then in the brick where he's getting that warm meal using the cash that Maurice gave him, he's in the bathroom shaving himself. And he kind of looks down on the establishment like he kind of takes Dave the cook out whenever he's knocking on the door. And he tells him like, hey, you guys are using like really crappy paper towels. Like for a few (laughs) cents more, you guys can get better ones that I can use to just shave my face. Yeah, that's an interesting scene. Uh, Yeah, you're right. Like I don't really know what what uh there's some deleted scenes in this episode i'm I'm curious to know why this one like what it adds uh but it almost comes in the midst of a like i think there's a lot of um a lot of things happening in this like sequence and it's like checking in on each because like this is when chris starts stealing light bulbs uh so there's a lot like people moving around through the scenes so it's almost like they're checking in with each little character along the way um but yeah that is is odd. I'm not really sure why we've got this scene of Lance shaving and asking for better paper towels. Yeah, it's at this point that I think like, oh, is the show pulling like a fast one on me? Are they trying to show that like Lance is a grifter Ooh. and like trying to take yeah, advantage true. of the town? Yeah, that's what that scene could read as. It's like he's like uh, hustling them or something. Like he wants more, like he's demanding more. It's the beggars can't be choosers thing, I guess. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. Like he's demanding a better paper towel, but it's I guess it falls in line with the next scene that follows it. I I think it was strange they introduced it in this manner. But yeah, if we follow it up with the next scene, it kind of makes sense. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Speaking of deleted scenes, uh, there is a there is a shaving scene that's a deleted scene. There's a scene where like Shelly uh, is shaving Holling because, well, you know, Holling is hibernating throughout this episode. He does wake up by the end. We'll get there. But I didn't even notice this, but Holling is like, you know, he doesn't have like a long beard or like a scruff. I, I want to say he's kind of clean shaven when he uh, wakes up from his hibernation. So, you know, there's that scene that's it's deleted, but there's a scene that explains why Hauling is uh, not like doesn't have this gnarly beard. Um, I wonder if the director was like fighting for this scene really hard. He's like, no, no one's going to believe it. If Holling wakes up and he's clean shaven, <laughs> we have to shoot this one scene. Oh, that actually <laughs> completely eluded me. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we get this, uh, we get this, uh, we get this other shaving scene still not cut from the episode, this, uh, Lance shaving scene, but, um, but sorry. Yeah. You were saying that maybe it makes a little more sense if we take it in context with, the following scene. So tell us what, what happens next there. Yeah, so Maurice revisits Lance in the place where he sets up shop to stay at. And he's kind of asking him, like, well, how did that happen? Was it because of drugs? Was it some sort of misfortune that befell you? Like, how did you come into being a hobo? And Lance gives him the answer of this story of how one day he was in a field working for this, um, I think he said like a cable TV company. Yeah. And he's saying that he was in the field and then he saw some really bright multicolored lights that just shined down on him. And then just as soon as they came, they disappeared. 
And from that event on, he can no longer reassimilate back into, you know, quote unquote, uh, society. Yeah, he says it, he calls it a change of venue. Um, he says he, after that encounter, uh, he doesn't say UFO, but, you know, what he's describing sounds like, like a UFO encounter. Um, he says after that, he had a hard time keeping his mind on things. Uh, the world had turned over and I couldn't hold on. Very, it sounds a lot like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's like, you know, people uh, have have an encounter with UFOs and with aliens and then they're kind of, the main character is, you know, kind of obsessed and like loses his job. I want to say he even works for, the, it's the same thing. Like he works, like he's changing power cables, like for the cable company. I could be wrong, but uh he loses his job and just like is obsessed with uh, with a- with alien sightings. Mm. I read the scene a little bit differently. I thought that maybe what they were going for was like mental illness right there. So mm. maybe the lights that he was seeing is that like maybe he was changing some cables like up on one of those uh, cable poles. He did something wrong. It sparked and blew up. And what he misinterpreted as bright lights was actually just like the fuse box blowing up in his face or something. And that caused some sort of traumatic event. Or it could be that like he just has PTSD from serving in Vietnam and he symbolizes the bright lights as that war event. And now he can't re-enter into society, kind of like the plot line of Rambo. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great interpretation Um, because like I guess my first instinct with this show is – more of like magical realism. So of course I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is a guy who saw some aliens. And uh, I think even later, you know, I think Maurice being an astronaut might have some some similar experiences that he talks about. But no, I think that's also, a, because they don't explicitly say UFO, aliens, uh, you know, you, it's totally open to interpretation for, for what you're saying. Maybe it's like a mental illness that, you know, plagues so many... Um, Homeless people, so many veterans with PTSD. All right, and that brings us to the final scene between Lance and Maurice, where Maurice brings him back into his house, and he's kind of telling him, you know, like, uh, I could use some replacements around this place, maybe some new tile work. Basically, I just need some labor done, and I'm offering you this job that can pay you well, get you out of this slump. And Lance turns him down. He actually says, like, ah, you know, I'll think about it. But I just just don't kind of want to do it. And Maurice relays his own story about saying, like, he had also saw some lights when he was up there in space. And Maurice says, a sane man, whenever he encounters the inexplicable, ignores it. Yeah, and we talked about this already. It's interesting that uh, Lance claims to be a hobo, which uh, I guess by our definition, Charles, is like someone seeking work, a traveling worker, but denies it here for, for, for some reason. In fact, he says, I'm sorry, I can't help you out. Maurice says, you're helping me out? No, you've got it backwards. So, of course, Maurice has always got to be in control. But yeah, it, it, it's it's Maurice's uh, point of view that it's it's almost like, I don't know why this just literally just popped in my head, but um, sort of like the HP Lovecraft idea of uh, like uh, in like the Call of Cthulhu board games and, and things like that, just sanity being... Um, also sort of an attribute that will be uh, diminished and lost. You know, you lose your sanity when you see when you see something so inexplicable, these uh, aberrations, these horrors. So for Maurice, he believes that it would be insane, like Lance would be insane to, uh, to let this, uh, you know, change him in this way. 
I don't know. Maurice just can't um, can't can't figure it out. Can't abide it. Right. You know, tying that in into the shaving scene, I think that there's something to be found because, like we were talking about previously, you had said the words that Lance was trying to be like a, a chooser, like he wanted to have his own way. In much the same way that he chose the term hobo, he is choosing to turn this job down, and he is choosing to be quote unquote insane. Because Maurice is saying, if you're sane, you would just ignore it. And yeah. he's not ignoring it, therefore implying he is insane and he is choosing to be that. Yeah. It's he's made his choice. He's made his mind up. He could have forgotten it and kept his life. But for him, it's just like he's it's that I don't I don't ever I still don't understand what he means by change of venue. But that to me translates to uh it's that moment that happened that it you know, it made everything else didn't seem to matter. You know, that's the one thing that mattered to him was uh, something he couldn't explain, I guess. Yeah, I think that at least in my mind, the way I read it was that change of venue meant that he couldn't be in the same place anymore. Yeah. So if you can't be in some place anymore mentally, you might as well go to the different place physically. So he just keeps traveling in order to hope that the different locations will also affect them mentally. Yeah. Fascinating scene, fascinating uh, character. I, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but the actor that plays Lance is Scott Paulin. He was apparently also in um, I'll Fly Away, which is the other Brand Falsy TV series that aired around the same time as Northern Exposure. And uh, it turns out he also directs, he will later direct an episode in the sixth season, uh, which we'll be sure to bring it back up once we get there. Uh, the sixth season of Northern Exposure, I mean, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, this was one of the plot lines that I felt like they didn't have a proper resolution for. I, I thought they were still going to have one more scene with this, but it actually ends right here with them with a non-definitive answer of whether or not Lance is going to work for Maurice. I, I'm i not too sure I like how it ends. Yeah, well, I would say I think it's definitive. I don't think Lance is going to work for Maurice, but yeah, it feels like it's, does feel like it's inconclusive um, because I guess what we're to understand is Lance is just going to leave here. And I think the only thing we really get to see in this story arc uh, storyline is Maurice's arc of going from suspicious, uh, untrustworthy, uncaring to em empathetic for Lance, but then uh, realizing that Maurice has certain attitudes uh, that, you know, say, you know, to to ignore the inexplicable. I guess there's a lot of magic in the world and especially in the world of Northern Exposure. And Maurice is uh, sort of the straight man or the, the person that doesn't buy into it. And I thought that might apply maybe more with um, maybe the sculpture at the end, but Maurice doesn't have any words at the end. Like uh, I, I'm just remembering like in, uh, I think it's Aurora Borealis, when Chris makes a sculpture of the Aurora Borealis and Maurice is like, I don't get it. Like, you know, um, <laughs> so that, it just reminded me of that. It's like, it's, it's the inexplicable to him, but no, there's not a scene like that in this episode. Yeah. Well, that ends the plot line with Lance and Maurice. Uh, should we hop into the next one with, mm, let's say Maggie? Sure. Yeah. So we've got Maggie and sort of Mike, I guess would be the, uh, yeah, that's, that's the storyline here. Maggie, I think the first time we see her in the episode is she's walking into Ruthann's store. And of course, as we mentioned, Ruthann is painting. She's working on that painting of the poppies. 
Um, Maggie, I actually can't remember why she came in. She's like a lost, uh, she's just kind of ambling about. And uh, Ruth Ann says, oh, I understand. Like, I get it. Like, you are still rehashing uh, this traumatic experience. I don't know if Ruth Ann says traumatic, but this experience with Joel, you know, they they slept together and uh, Maggie blacked it out and forgot about it. It's, uh, you know, you're still working through that maybe. And Maggie says, no, you're actually wrong. I've been thinking of Mike. She's been fantasizing about Mike. Right. And the reason that she just won't pull that plug is because she's worried that if she sleeps with Mike, it puts him on the timer. Ergo, it means that he'll die because Maggie has this belief that whichever man that she sleeps with, they'll eventually die. And I mean, so far, that has turned out to be true, I guess without uh, not counting Joel, but her boyfriends uh, of past, uh, her past boyfriends have have all died in some, uh, in, in different ways, some rather inexplicable, but uh, yeah, yeah. So she, so she doesn't want to subject Mike to that or she feels guilty about that. But yeah, I think that's all for that scene in the store. Before, actually, before we go on to the next Maggie scene, I was just checking out my notes. Uh, this actually occurs during the moment when um, Bernard and Maurice are watching Lance rifle through trash. But I thought I'd point it out because I thought it was some pretty good extra, uh, some features of like extras. Uh, there's a couple guys like laying in the snow, soaking up the rays. I believe uh, in an earlier broadcast, um, Bernard says like sunrise at 4.02 p.m., sunset at 4.48 p.m., so they really only have like, what, 40 minutes of, 40 uh, odd minutes of sunlight. So throughout the episode, you'll see people soaking up the rays. You'll see like a woman holding a little, uh, what is that, like the little reflector, just like standing in the middle of the street, I guess, trying to get whatever <laughs> sun they can get for the 40 minutes that it's out. Uh, we all we see in this sequence with the uh, the dudes laying in the snow, one of them makes a little pillow out of snow and puts it behind his head. I thought that was pretty fun. I, I That reminded me that you can actually get sunburned walking Ooh, in yeah. the snow because the sun reflects off of the snow. Right. And I, I, we're probably going to get like a lot of people rolling their eyes being like, of course I know that every, like even first graders know that uh, we live in the <laughs> South. We don't get snow. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating to us. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We also see a couple ladies frolicking in the snow. Uh, I couldn't tell, but one of them might have might have uh, looked like Harvest Moon. I, I couldn't tell. Maybe that was maybe that was Moon there. I just wanted to point out, that, you know, lots of great little little touches, little notes with these extras. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I love that. It makes the town come alive. Makes the episode come alive for sure. Even if it's just like for the split second at like the start of a scene, it's like of you know, it's the things you don't really remember, but they're there kind of uh, decorating it. Yeah, I think those are much better to have. I understand why they wouldn't do it, though, because it's so much hassle to, like, you know, presumably you're doing, like, five or six shots of every single scene. So every single time you got to round up the extras and be like, okay, like, you know, do the same thing you were doing right there. And then you have to keep doing it. It's so much easier if you just did, like, I don't know, like a profile shot and be like, it's just these two actors. You just have to focus on them right there. <laughs> but we know why they do it. Like, it's exactly what you said. It really brings brings it to life, like brings the setting, uh, makes it feel real. But yeah, so Maggie, you know, what is the next time we see Maggie? Is it like when she's like uh, working on the case? Spoiler? Yeah, so Maggie's plotline is actually relatively short and I'm going to be upfront, not one of my favorites. But yeah, in the next scene that involves Maggie, she's helping Mike 
try to solve this dispute between Joel's boycott of being a doctor in the town of Sicily. And this scene, really, its only purpose is to establish, like, the the chemistry between the two actors and how, like, Maggie and, how and Mike both want to be. Just, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it, it just shows, that, like, oh, this is just a scene to show that they like each other and that they won't, you know, but yeah. she's not willing to cross that line. I yeah I did I exactly I, I I'm not a I don't think they have a lot of chemistry maybe that's a subjective point of view but uh it, it's a little strained in this scene for me but what I did find fun or sin very sinister about this scene is uh you know Mike gets very excited you know because he's being thrilled again he probably hasn't practiced law in a while uh, he just like lives in a bubble so he's excited to be entering the courtroom again he's talking words like you know you'll ne- you, you would never understand the feeling of like uh being so prepared when you go into the courtroom and you can like shove it in the other lawyer's face or, or something like that but what's really funny is uh they're getting really excited because they find some case precedents um maggie does and mike is like this is it we got it and he says uh and you maggie you put the final nail in Joel's coffin and Maggie's reaction. It's like a hard close up on Maggie and she has this big, bright smile and she's like, thank you. It's just so like, <laughs> I feel so bad for Joel and God, they're so evil in this scene. <laughs> oh God. We, we, we'll, we'll talk more about Joel yeah. as, as we progress. But the next thing with Maggie is her waking up in the middle of the night because Chris has broken into her house to try to find an old lava lamp right there. It's and a, sorry to cut you off. It's an awesome shot when it, like when it opens up on Maggie, it's actually kind of a strange hard cut. Like there's no commercial break. I think it comes right off of, uh, when Lance tells Maurice about the, you know, th- this is how I, this is my change of venue scene when he's like, I saw this, uh, these bright lights. And then we did get a hard cut to Maggie like stalking through her house. It's this crazy dolly shot and it's like dark lit, you know, and she's got a gun, uh, like a shotgun or something stalking through her house. And yeah, you're right. Chris is broken in is like stealing stuff. Oh yeah. That's a good detail because then that puts the audience in the shoes of Maggie. Cause it's such a hard cut right there that we yeah. feel like we also just woke up in the middle of the night and there's like all this motion, uh, it's like, it's exciting. Yeah. And in the scene, this is where Maggie confides to Chris and being like, you know, I, I admire you. You know what you want. Like you want to make this art piece. You're willing to go the distance and just rob my house with like <laughs> yeah. no regard to consequences. Yeah. She doesn't seem You're willing to, to die. <laughs> I guess she likes You're willing Chris to die for this. And I can't even go for what I want, which is to go for Mike. And the resolution to this is that Chris gives her the advice of being like, you know, oftentimes uh, you got to go for what you want, even if you got to hurt other people. It's pretty messed up. Yeah, Chris is, uh, Chris, and I'll say this, there's a deleted scene that explains it a little bit better, but what they left for broadcast is basically saying like human casualties, like human sacrifices is like, okay, (laughs) if you're trying to do something important, I think is what he says. Let me play uh, since... Since I've cut it out, let me play the, uh, I'll play the full scene, uh, because, uh, well, how about this? I'll play the, uh, I'll play the original and then I'll play, um, the little part that got cut out. That'll probably be easier. So, so here's what happened. I mean, you make a decision and you go for it. You follow through no matter what. You hold that? Sure. Me, I'm a wuss. How's that? 
mean, I want something. Someone, actually. But I can't do anything about it. I mean, I'm completely frozen because I won't take the risk. Here it is. Uh, it's a different kettle of fish, though. What do you mean? Your situation with Mike. I break in here at 3 a.m., I risk my life. You hit the rack with Mike, you risk his. Yeah. You know, but I'm saying, what the hell, go for it. Nail him to the sheets. You know why? Because real meaningful endeavors, I mean, the biggies in the human existence, they often require the sacrifice of others. Night. Night. I love how with just the soundbite, there's just like a really long pause after Chris says it, it requires the sacrifice of others. It's just very <laughs> awkward. But um, in that space, you know, there is a, it does, it extends in the, in the uh, deleted scene of this. So let me show the part of that, um, that original piece of dialogue where he, he relates it to Magellan. So I'll play that right now. No, but I'm saying, what the hell? Go for it. Nail him to the sheets. You know why? Because meaningful endeavors, the real biggies in the human existence, they often require the sacrifice of others. Take Magellan. This guy leaves Spain. Five ships, 275 men. Three years later, after suffering freezing cold, mutiny, starvation, one ship, not five, one, 18 men limped back. Magellan lost most of his crew. He himself was hacked to death in the Philippines. But he proved that the world was round. You know what I'm saying? I know that you do. Get some sleep. So yeah, with that little backstory, it seems like maybe what Chris is trying to say is like, you can't be afraid of risks, even if like death is a risk, because every day, I think there's another episode where he says like, every day we're confronted with death. Like even just driving your car to work is confronting death. So I think maybe that's what he's trying to get across, but totally lost in the broadcast. Like he just straight up said, you know, the biggest things in human existence come from human sac sacrifice of others or something. I think that it would be made better if you just added one word and it's the word possibility of human sacrifice because he's taking it at face value. Like he's saying like, I'm not even going to deny that your unproven theory of whoever you sleep with will die. I'm just going to believe it and be like, if you sleep with Mike, he will die, but you should still do it for this momentary happiness. He should say like, you know, maybe you can defy fate. Maybe it won't come true. Maybe you control your own destiny. And even if it does happen, then, you know, you still have to take the risk because, you know, the possibilities can always happen. Like, I think that would have been better than being like, oh, no, you're guaranteed to kill him. Like, it's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he should have should have played up the idea that like risk is a factor and that's not something you have to be afraid of. Like everyone's afraid of risk, but this this is a big thing for you, you know, if you really love this person. Uh tempt fate or like defy fate as you said, Charles. Yeah. Chris Chris uh did come here because he was looking for lights. He was looking specifically for a lava lamp. Uh, that Maggie had, and that's what he leaves the scene with. That brings us to the final scene with Maggie. She's showing back up with Mike with some sparkling cider right here. Um, another scene where people are drinking. Mm. Um, previously, we had scenes where Chris was drinking with Lance or Maurice is eating with Lance as well. But in this scene, Maggie is celebrating with Mike, and it ends with her you know, kind of saying the same thing that Chris is saying. Like, if you're not willing to take a risk for something you really care about, then like, you might as well be dead. And then they, you know, they kiss. Yeah. Um, I, I can't soundbite this scene because uh, there's some music underlying it. But I do think uh, Maggie's monologue, at least her performance, is pretty great. I'll read her her lines here. 
Mike, have you ever heard of those people who live those safe, secure lives? Of course, that that is Mike. You know, he lives in a bubble. Uh, but this is also that line also evokes uh, sort of like Maggie's mom in uh, burning down the house when she's like, you know, I used to live in this type of life. Um, but anyway, Maggie continues. I don't think you can measure life in terms of years. I think longevity doesn't necessarily have anything to do with happiness. Happiness comes from facing challenges and going out on a limb and taking risks. And if you're not willing to take a risk for something you really care about, you might as well be dead, right? Um, sure, yeah. And, oh, she also says, Mike, kiss me, and they kiss. Uh, but but sure, yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. Uh, I think it's really interesting to to qualify happiness or to define happiness as as coming from facing challenges, taking risks. Because you don't often think about that sort of thing bringing happiness. You know, challenges are scary. Um, but I guess maybe her idea is that uh, to really feel alive and uh, to really feel happiness, it's not. It's about getting out of your comfort zone, perhaps. Yeah, I, it definitely is all that. You know, Maggie's just. You know, if I distill her message, she's basically just saying yellow. Like she's just saying, <laughs> yeah. like you know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta go for it. Yeah. Uh, I don't have. I don't have a problem with what they're trying to say. I have a problem with the way that they say it. Um, oftentimes, I think that you know you can use less dialogue to actually deliver more things. In this one, I don't think they needed to say it so upfront, like, yeah, like so, on the nose, like so spelled yeah, out like that. Yeah, I think that that's ugly writing. <laughs> I I felt like they, like that theme is a universal theme. There's a whole lot of ways to play it out rather than just straight up saying it right there. And that's what I think makes this scene very weak. I don't disagree with the premise. I yeah. just wish they would have thought outside the box with yeah. it. I think I can agree with you there. If there's anything I like in this scene, it's uh, first, it's Maggie's performance. Uh, and then I like the sentiment of what she's saying. Uh, but maybe you're right. You know, like your other complaint was that you felt like a lot of the uh, threads of this episode were uh, not concluded, like inconclusive. Uh, and maybe this is similar in a way that like the way they concluded this thread was by straight up saying everything, like really dictating it out rather than uh, demonstrating it. I mean, this whole plot line is a demonstration of this sentiment, but the way it ends is so um, spelled out to the audience. Right. The only thing I like about this scene is right at the end when they're kissing, they pan away, like they get off camera, and then we're left with just a champagne, the two glass bottles, and a orchid flower. Oh, yeah. I do remember this shot. Yeah, and I think the shots like this can demonstrate what you're trying to say. Now, orchids usually mean a symbol of pure love, beauty, or toughness. It can also mean refined beauty. Obviously, it goes into the scene of the love between Mike and Maggie. You could have just done like a shot of the orchids right here, and that would demonstrate what they're trying to say in that whole message. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could use a lot of, uh, I see what you're saying. Your, your approach, Charles, if you were directing this episode would be a lot more image-based, for sure. Lots of flowers, too, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the flower shop. No. Uh, that, but yeah, that's the termination of their plot line. In fact, you know, I don't think we see Mike. Do we see Mike at the uh, in the final scene, like with the sculpture and stuff? Or uh, No, he doesn't leave his place. Yeah, I don't think he's there. So that leaves us with Joel, right? I mean, I guess the other plot lines you could think of is maybe Hauling, but we can get to him. He kind of uh, shows have... up at the end. What's the we other have Chris one? for the end. Oh, Chris too. Chris for the end and, and hauling. Well, what do you think? Should we go into 
Joel and kind of like pepper in Chris as he uh, as he appears. Yeah, we can we can start with Joel and end with Chris. Cool. So yeah, we already talked about like the first scene with Joel, but I might as well toss in a few other little things I noticed in that scene. Uh, we talk about it's the introduction of Joel's idea that he's going to go on a vacation. And that obviously the opening soundbite, Marilyn says it's not going to happen. Uh, Joel does a little little dance. He has a little dance and song. And the lyrics are two weeks, 14 days, two weeks, 14 days. And he's like dancing around. I think it's played off pretty well. I imagine it was probably very awkward on set. It must be really hard for an actor to do something like that, just to take those lines and try to do something with it. Obviously, uh, Elaine Miles, who plays Marilyn, she's having, she's like trying not to laugh, you know, because it's kind of ridiculous. But Joel mentions also that, you know, he's going to go to some you know, exotic island. I think he says Martinique, Barbados, or uh, St. Bart's. But he says, I think first I'll go spend a week in New York with uh, Miss Pucha. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's like Yiddish, I guess, for uh, like the the Jewish family or a social unit. I just Googled that. Um, but I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, he mentions that he wants to catch Blue Man Group in New York. And then he would spend the next uh, week, I guess, out in, uh, in in exotic sort of like beach environment. Yeah, he also said that he was going to catch a showing of falsettos, which oh. is uh, chronologically in line. I think falsettos came out in like 1992 right there. And falsettos, the opening song for that one is called Four Jews in a Room. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a very topical. Yeah, I like when this show is kind of like in the now, like for for their time. And now, just like we said before, like, you know, if you're in a television show and you really want something, you're probably not going to get it. And this is the scene where Marilyn comes in and tells Joel that the state of Alaska has now said that the vacation is denied. His, uh, his services are too valuable right now. Yeah, it turns out like if he were to go on vacation, they uh, the state of Alaska was unable to find a replacement during this vacation time. So it's just impossible for them to give the vacation. I don't know if that just, like, I guess that the way... Joel receives that news is like he just never gets his vacation. Uh, I just would imagine they would try to push it further until they can get a replacement, which is a bummer. Like I would still, you know, I would still understand the character of Joel wanting to protest that, but uh, it almost seems like he's just not going to get a vacation ever. Yeah, I... I wish they would have expounded on this more just as like an audience member. I understand why they didn't do it, but I wish they would have told us like, did Joel inform the state of Alaska like months beforehand that he was taking a vacation? <laughs> or was this like really sudden? Like he just did it yesterday and they sent him a telegram now being like, oh, you can't do it on such short notice. We can't find a doctor. Because if it's the former, that's really messed up. Like, because it, it seems like he had this in the bag in his mind. Yeah. So presumably the state of Alaska had okayed it. They were like, yeah, it's fine. You can take a two week vacation on like in the month of March. You know, we're in August right now. You know, we can find someone, but no, they they never explain it. So I can't tell exactly how much the state of Alaska just screwed Joel right here. Yeah, a little more clarity would have been nice. We talked about how, like, we don't really know what was stated in uh, Joel's contract, but um, I found this scene was was fun because it had, like, a nice little bookend on both sides. It starts with Joel explaining the uh, seasonal, what is it, sad? What was it again? Seasonal, seasonal affective disorder? Right. Seasonal affective disorder. Great. Uh, he explains that to Marilyn, you know, not enough sunlight causes uh, 
sad sadness literally. Uh, but uh, Marilyn brings him the bad news, and then he says something to her like, "Look, just leave me alone. I, I don't want to talk to anyone right now." And Marilyn says, "Yeah, it, it's sad." You know, echoing the <laughs> echoing the seasonal affective disorder from the beginning, <laughs> and that, that's the end of that scene. Oh wait, wait, wait. The way Marilyn brings it up that uh, she got this news or that Joel's getting this news, uh, she walks into his office and she says, we were right, which I thought was funny because it's like Marilyn thinks Joel was agreeing with her in the beginning, like it's not going to happen. Like Joel, I think Joel was just being sarcastic, but Charles, you were also saying maybe Joel also was just, you know, being very cynical too. But I think it's funny. (laughs) Either way, I think it's funny that Marilyn was like, we were right. You agree with me, Joel, right? You know, we were right. <laughs> I didn't catch that. I didn't catch the we. I thought that was hilarious, yeah. But go, go ahead and take us to the next scene. Yeah, so Joel is just boycotting his duties as a doctor. He is betraying the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. And we can see that because a townsfolk comes in with uh, like a, a psoriasis. Well, he says like, we want to remove my corn. That's what he was <laughs> It's like Joel was supposed to remove my corn, I think. Yeah, and Joel has to be like, uh, no, like I can't give in because the moment I do is the moment they'll they'll take advantage oh, of me. Sorry, yeah, you were right, psoriasis. My bad, because this is a uh, that was a different scene. The the thing with the corn, like someone comes to the office and Marilyn's like, Joel's not in, uh, and Marilyn says, do you want me to remove the corn? And the guy's like, I guess, okay, but that's just so oh. sh- that's like a short little. <laughs> scene uh but the psoriasis scene is the next big scene so sorry continue there uh marilyn just committing medical <laughs> malpractice right <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> exactly. um sorry keep yeah. going i didn't mean to cut you off it's okay so yeah in this scene joe is trying to say like you know y'all should be supporting me because if they can bully me the town doctor they can surely bully you right after like they're not going to know what their line of limitation is right here and is uh, still with the scene. I, I feel like I'm still with Joel. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I feel like he is at least a man of resolve. Like he doesn't want to give in, and he. We know that he's serious about being a doctor too. It's not like he takes that frivolously. Yeah. So for him to deny this person must take a lot out of him, especially since it's such an easy solution. He's saying like, I just want like the cream. You know, just give me that. <laughs> yeah. And Joel's not even willing to budge for that. Some people may. Uh, read the scene differently. That might be like, oh, Joel's being such an a-hole right here, not even going like that little distance. But Joel's at least, you know, putting his foot down. Yeah, I think most people, at least today, would agree with Joel. Like, workers have basic fundamental rights, I think is what Joel says. Um, You know, everyone deserves a vacation. It's messed up if you don't get one. I think anyone would join Joel's side. but, um, But I do think it is kind of shocking and I'm glad that they bring it up in this scene specifically, but like as soon as Joel says like he's going to boycott, obviously you think Hippocratic Oath. Like what the heck? This guy's, we know Joel's a good doctor. Why would he betray that oath? So I think it's smart that the episode mentions that in this scene. Like Joel literally says, do you think I like betraying my Hippocratic Oath? Uh, he's like, he's, he's got to do it to make a stand, uh, to take a stand and fight for his rights. Not only his, but he feels like you know, he, whatever, uh, whatever he's standing up against, he's going to fight it for not just himself, but for anyone that the state of Alaska might try to screw over. Right. He's going beyond just being a doctor right here. He's saying like, you're infringing on like my human right, which is, you know, a powerful statement. 
So in the next scene, we see that Maurice has gathered the town into a classic town hall scene. All Very right. big fan of these. I always love it when they were together to town like this. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was actually hilarious. He thought he thought they were all here to discuss the uh, homeless man problem, but they were <laughs> yeah. like, no, 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 we're here to discuss Joel. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, he wants to imprison Joel, but it's actually he's talking about Lance. And then the town's like, wait, why are you? No, we're here to talk about Joel. We want to talk about Fleischman. And uh, Ed enters, and he's he's there to speak for... Dr. Fleischman, he says, Dr. Fleischman respectfully declines to attend, but that I'm here to talk for him. Uh, and he's got a statement for the town hall. Here, I'll play that uh, soundbite. Ed, where's Fleischman? Dr. Fleischman respectfully declines to attend. Decline? Oh, yes. He feels that his presence here would compromise his position. Well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, he's instructed me to speak on his behalf. So... If y'all consider me Dr. Fleischman. Despite my reluctance to live and practice in a small rural community, I have served the borough of Arrowhead in good faith. However, that good faith has not been reciprocated, and therefore I have been left with no other recourse but to withhold my services so that I may obtain what is contractually and morally mine. And, uh, Oh, yes, uh, taking questions from the floor now. Yeah, I think it's funny that, well, it's neat that Ed and Joel are working together. You know, we saw a lot of their friendship in the last episode, but uh, I think it's also hilarious. Ed does a really good job uh, replying in Joel's absence here. Like people are asking Ed, you know, what happens if like someone gets really, really sick and Ed, speaking as Fleischman, you know, responds, uh, I, I forgot what it was. Like he said, like he made some sort of like arrangement with a nearby doctor. If something really bad were to happen, we'll, we'll ship you off over there or something. Yeah. He's saying that like that question should be more directed toward the state of Alaska, but I'll try <laughs> to give you my own answer right here. Ed either has a really good memory right. because he memorized everything that Fleischman told him to say, or he's just really good at thinking how other people should think. <laughs> Because yeah. he doesn't even have note cards up there. Like, he speaks exactly how Joe would speak. Yeah, he's like playing Dr. Fleischman. He's pretending, he's like acting to be Dr. That's pretty good. That or he has like an earpiece or something, and Joel's like right outside. <laughs> but no. Right. And the townsfolk, their conclusion to this uh, is that they'll try to trade him in other <laughs> goods or services, yeah. but they don't give him the two weeks. Right. It's kind of messed up. Well, Maurice says, I'll give like, we'll put down $500. I think it's Maurice, uh, $500 cash, which is, that does not equate two weeks. Uh, uh, no, but, um, Shelly says, uh, two free spaghetti lunches from the brick. Uh, Ruthann says six <laughs> orange roughy fillets. So fillets, sorry. Um, so yeah, they're, they're trying to offer up just random stuff. Barter, <laughs> barter with Jay. Yeah, and Ed doesn't take uh, doesn't take deal, which leads to the next scene where they hire Mike. They put Mike on retainer so that he can go to Joel's place and serve him papers, telling him that he's being sued because of breach of contract. And again, we don't have a lot of clarity into the situation because is Joel really breaking a contract stipulation? And I'm not a lawyer at all, so I don't know how this works, but... Can the state of Alaska really sue Joel if they were the ones who broke the contract first? Right. You're right. I mean, unless like there was a stipulation in the contract that, but it didn't seem like from Joel's perspective, it didn't seem like there was any, there was any wiggle room with the vacation. So like the fact that Alaska 
denied him his vacation. Yeah, we don't really know a whole lot. Uh, it just serves the purpose of the episode, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'll, I'll buy it. But, but yeah, I wish there was perhaps a little more clarity. Um, one thing I thought was really cool in this scene, there is a mention of uh, a Judge Percy, and we remember her from season four, episode ten, Crime and Punishment. Like, uh, Mike drops her name. Apparently, they're they're going to hold court with Judge Percy. You know, when this gets to court, uh, which I thought would be pretty cool, but. Probably the most affecting part of this scene, at least for me, was, you know, Joel does this throughout the remainder of the episode, but, you know, when he's confronted by the town, he says, how how could you do this to me? Like, you know, speaking to Mike here, it's like, you know, I've treated you, like I've gone along with you, even if we may have our differences, and even if, you know, I don't believe that what you're suffering is this, I believe it's something else, like, I've treated you, I've taken care of you. Um, and I think Mike gets out of it. Okay. Mike says like, look, I got retained by the city. If it wasn't for that, I would have been delighted to represent you in this case. But, but yeah, maybe he's getting off a little too easy there. Right. And the important thing to note at the end of the scene is that Mike sympathizes with Joel. And we can see that in the next scene where many of the townsfolk sympathize with Joel. Uh, Shelly says like, oh man, like, I'm really sorry you're going through this right here, but you know, I'm doing it because, you know, all for one or one for all, which (laughs) I think is an important statement that will come into Chris's plotline, but Mm. we'll we'll get that later. And in Ruthann, Ruthann says like, oh, you know, that and that, like, it's, you know, I wouldn't take it too personally, Joel, right there. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of parallels with this and homeless people because we look at homeless people and we say like, oh, that's like so poor, man. Like, look at these people. But then once we're confronted with it, we get a visceral reaction like Bernard whenever we see them up close. Yeah. So they're kind of having the same reaction with homeless people as they do with Joel. There you go. That is a great connection. And and uh, I think maybe we could also tie that into Maurice's uh this whole spiel to Lance in, the, in their final scene, like confronted with this uh, ugly image, you know, ugly, I say, like inexplicable is what uh, Maurice calls it. But, you know, what Bernard is saying, like we have this sort of conditioned repugnance towards towards homeless people. And maybe that's what Maurice is saying, even though he doesn't realize it. I like how you tied it in with, uh, you know, the way they all feel sad for Joel, but they're not going to help him out when it comes down to it, which is messed up. I mean, like they could, they could help him out. Like normally, I feel like normally the the town is on his side, even when he doesn't deserve their help because he's kind of a jerk sometimes, but I feel like they're all rooting for him, you know? And, uh, it's, it sucks that they're, uh, they're all part of this lawsuit now. Yeah. Hey, I mean, if we were going <laughs> on like a wacky sitcom route, you would be able to say like, Okay, well, like, everyone be the town doctor for two weeks. Like, you (laughs) get a day, and then you get a day. Uh, I know you're committing, like, so many, you know, so many laws are being broken right here. But, I mean, Maryland already treated somebody right there. Yeah. Like, it's not like it's going out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, but, like, no one sticks their head out for Joel right there. And, in fact, the very last person to stab him in the back is Ed. That is so messed up, too. Yeah, Joel is walking home. And Ed is like working on his door or something. He's like, "Oh, oh, hey, Joel, can you hand me that? Uh, can you hand me that screwdriver?" And Joel is just complaining. He's like, "Man, I can't believe it! Like everyone's turned on me." And Joel's like, uh, "Sorry, Ed's like, I know, right? Uh, all right, I'm all finished." And Joel's like, "Wait, w- what's going on?" He's like, "Yeah, I changed the locks. Now you can't get into your house. Also, all of your possessions were seized." <laughs> but it, it, it's nice of Ed. It turned out Ed. Uh, 
snagged him like a, he filled like a bag full of like a change of clothes and some toothbrush. So he's trying to help a little bit with Joel, but he still did him the dirty and like locked his door on him, which is kind of messed up. Yeah. And that's what brings us to the next scene where Joel, is, he's got his own like camp thing. Like he is now homeless himself. And the thing that made this scene super hilarious unintentionally is that they juxtaposed it with the scene where Maurice is inviting Lance to eat. And for a second, <laughs> I thought that Lance was in Joel's place. Yeah. Like I, I thought they kicked him out of the house and they brought this homeless person there <laughs> and they switched the roles. <laughs> Lance is the new doctor, you mean? Yeah, like he lives in Joel's place now. Now Joel is going to hire him to be the next. (laughs) Well, what was funny is when I saw there's like a moment where you see Joel crawling out of the tent. You know, Joel is like the homeless person now. Um, I thought that was Lance at first. I had to rewind it. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he is actually because he doesn't have a home anymore. And I mean, now it's totally clear that uh, comparison you drew, Charles, because Joel is literally homeless now. It's a, it's a, it's a total, I love how this episode is sort of pointing that out without being very preachy and saying like, of course, Bernard is preaching on the radio earlier. And he's like, you know, why is it that we do this? I think we should be more empathetic, but the episode doesn't go so far as to, to show that throughout, but it does so in an indirect way by making Joel's plight, uh, similar to the homeless person. And then literally he does become homeless. So it's a literal right. analog there. Right. I think the scene also has some clever writing behind it. I'm not like, I think it's clever writing. I have to <laughs> okay. preface this. Which scene Because is I don't this? know if my brain is misinterpreting it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the scene where Joel is crawling out of his tent and Marilyn comes to see him to see how he's doing. And Joel thinks it's because Marilyn is here to stick up for him. But in actuality, it's because she's asking for his advice as a doctor. She's saying like, hey, should we order more of this supply right here? We're running low on it. And Joel's enraged, saying, like, like your friend is out here in the freezing cold, taking a stand by himself, and all you do is you come here and ask me, you you come here and ask me uh, about my advice on the, which is the source of all of my problems. Yeah, like his like his uh, you're you're asking me about my profession, my my skill, and that that's what's got me to this position now that I'm like homeless. Yeah, it's messed up. And and uh, Joel says, no, look, I'm not coming back. Like nothing you can say will bring me back. Uh, the scene ends, I think the scene ends with Marilyn asking like how long. Right. This is where I think it might be clever because Joel says, there's a principle at stake here and I don't care how many lawyers they hire or how many papers they file. It doesn't make a difference to me because I'm not going to stand for this injustice. You hear me? I won't stand for it. And then there's a moment of silence and then Marilyn says, for how long? And Joel replies, for how long what? And then Marilyn finally says, won't you stand? Yeah. For how long won't you stand is her question. But are, but are you saying maybe her response is a question? Won't you stand? Just that? Like, won't right. you get up? And I think it's like, won't you get up? Like, how long are you going to be there in the dirt instead of standing up for yourself? Which is like kind of clever in a way, but also doesn't make any sense because he <laughs> is standing up. Yeah. Like, he is taking a stand. In, in any other context, I think that would have been kind of clever wordplay right there. But in this context... He is standing. No. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I, I see what you're saying. It's a good bit of wordplay because when you separate the sentence that way, it kind of adds a new, um, it turns the phrase to, to, to something new. Won't you stand? Like, won't you get up? Yeah. But uh, I think the next scene is sort of the last little bit with Joel. Um, he returns to the office. And for me, you know, like I was feeling bad for Joel this whole episode. 
this is like a defeat. You know, he returns to the office and Marilyn walks in. She sees him like as he's taking his coat off and filling up some coffee. And he says, don't think I gave up. Like, no, that's not, that's not what this is. He, he explains to her, a person has three choices in life. See, what I realized is, a person has three choices in life. You can swim against the tide and get exhausted, or you can tread water and let the tide sweep you away, or you can swim with the tide and let it take you where it wants you to go. You decide to swim with the tide? Yeah. I think that's a really hard ending to sell because it's, it is it is like sort of a defeat. Like it's, he's giving up. He's, uh, you know, he's decided to go with the flow. Um, but I think at least why it really works for me is the performance, like Joel's smile, you know, and his like nod whenever Marilyn says, you decided to go with the flow. And, uh, you know, Joel's content, you know, he's not upset anymore. So at least that is a positive change throughout his uh, arc. But uh, no, unfortunately, he never, um, he, did, he, he didn't beat the state of Alaska. Yeah, he gives in at the end. He says he's just going to swim with the current right there. Yeah, oftentimes, phrases can take on different meanings whenever we see them in the context. So in another way, that can be like really happy. Like you're not fighting against something. Yeah. You decide to... You know, you're making sure your life doesn't have to be as complicated as it can be. But in another way, you can interpret it as being like, oh, you're conforming. Yeah. And now, instead of standing up for something that you morally and logically believe is right, you are now giving in and being like, ah, no, it's like it's just too much effort. Yeah. And, you know, if we take uh, Lance Corporal or Lance Bristol, you know, his whole thing is uh, he's not conforming. You know, he's got – he's – He's Joel if Joel stayed out in the tent in the cold. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, Joel just decided to uh, to go with it, to re-enter the the flow. Yeah, and this is how that plot line ends. That's <laughs> yeah. that's that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's they're they're, they're very small um, conclusions. I think like they're not big explosive uh, moments. I don't think, uh, which you know. I'm content with watching this episode, but I can agree with you. It feels a little um, maybe inconclusive, but what works for me, you know, maybe it's not as powerful, but uh, I don't know. I, I think that is a thing that you might find in, in Northern Exposure where it's uh, these like little climaxes. Right. Well, they saved the big one for the very last plot line with mm. Chris because that one's really bombastic. Yeah. So throughout this whole episode, Chris has been stealing – uh, light bulbs. In fact, it's like after he gets his break, I think at first he's struggling with the sculpture. Then he realizes he's got to go around stealing light bulbs from the brick. He's actually doing it like while the brick is open. I mean, obviously it's open 24 seven, but Shelly and Dave are very supportive. They don't seem to care. They're like, yeah, sure. Take the, take the bulb. He, he asks, can I take this? Um, leading up to the, um, exhibition of his next, uh, of his well, sculpture here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, before we get into that, I actually wanted to talk about the very first scene with Chris. Oh, yeah, what happens there? I actually can't remember. Oh, yeah, it's like, is it when Bernard is talking or or what? It's a little bit after that. It's right where we get introduced to his first idea. So Chris is out there in the middle of the day with these oh, two yeah. large metal structures. They're like these uh, cones that are made up of various objects, of regular objects, I would say. And it's just a splish splash of them on both of these towers right here. And Dave comes in and tells him like, 
hey, you know, that looks really interesting. Like, what are you building over there? And Chris was saying, like, I just can't contend with this. There, you know, There's nothing to this that is special. There is no there there. A remark that he takes from Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about this scene. Totally forgot about it. Yeah, there's no there there. He says it's thin, it's brittle, it has no weight. There's nothing going on. I think he says a tower is it's an archetype from Babel to Watts. Um, I guess he's working on towers. Dave suggests copper pipes, but I'm not really sure what else uh, what we can learn about this sculpture here. Like it's kind of confusing to Chris. It doesn't seem like there's much much value there for him. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that quote really quickly. Uh, there is no there there from Gertrude Stein. Yeah. She was saying it in relation to her childhood home no longer existing in Oakland, California. Uh, basically, what it means is that this something has no distinctive identity or no significant characteristics. So when Chris says that his art piece is just a tower and it's just an archetype, I think he's saying that an archetype, like a Jungian archetype, is already embedded in us and it's not original because there's just 12 of them mm. and inevitably we'll go to one of the 12. And that's the thing that he is really hung up on in that this whole is not original. Now, I want to do a little bit of a dive into pop psychology again. I know I did it the last episode, but for some inexplicable reason, it actually managed to find its way in this episode. So we may have heard of the term, the whole is greater than the sum of its part at some time in our lives, but that's actually misquoted. The real quote is, the whole is other than the sum of its parts. So before I get into the semantics of the quote, I want to talk about Jacob von Neuexikl. Now, Jacob von Neuexikl was a German biologist who studied in the field of biosemiotics, which is how animals develop and create meaningful communication within their environment. Neuexikl's theory of Umwalt was that an organism experiences the world in a specific frame of reference due to the biological mechanisms that it has to intake stimuli. By studying the senses of a species, one can make theories of how an organism experiences the world. This includes how they intake stimuli, organize it, and outputs behavioral responses to stimuli. So, I just said a bunch of things. <laughs> but basically, what Uexical was saying, in layman's term, is that we as humans see the world totally different than, say, a rabbit or a jellyfish. It can be due to our eyes perceiving different colors, our ears hearing different sound waves, or how our very brain may process information differently. So we will never see what a jellyfish sees. And it is this perception of individual species that New Mexico was concerned with, which is carried forward in Gestalt psychology. Gestalt psychology attempts to collect information about how humans collect and organize perception. It claims that our minds instinctively create meaningful wholeness. So the slogan of Gestalt psychology is, the whole is other than the sum of its parts, which speculates that a completed organization of stimuli is in a different mental entity than just the individual stimuli that creates the completed pattern. So once again, in layman's term, what Gestalt psychology is saying is that we always see things as a whole rather than its individual parts. So if I look at a car, I'm going to say it's a car. I'm not going to say, hey, look at that thing with four wheels and four windows, a trunk and a hood <laughs> with a front window and a rear window. We don't say that. We just say it's a car because our minds perceive things as a whole. So with that in mind, the issue when we misquote Gestalt psychology is that semantically, greater naturally gives importance on the whole while devalues the importance of the parts. 
The whole is not better or more important. It is rather an individual and unique aspect. The parts are not less of an importance, nor are they to be forgotten. They are equally and just as important. And this is really important because in this scene, Dave says he likes the bike chain. And Chris <laughs> says, of course you like the bicycle chain. The bicycle chain is fine in and of itself. It's just a whole, it's thin, you know? It's brittle. There's no weight. A bicycle chain is a completed product. Whereas what Chris is trying to create is a completed product where the bicycle chain is removed and we can perceive the chain as part of a whole product. His art piece at the moment can't be separated from the individual parts. It is not other than the sum of its parts. So that's why Chris is so bothered with this thing. He doesn't want people to see the individual pieces that make the tower. Mm. He wants us to just see the tower. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's great, because Dave is pointing out these little pieces. I think later he asks, uh, Chris asks Lance, like, do you believe this? Like, when you see this, do you believe it? Um, which could mean, like, you know, do you see a full picture? Do you, like, what do you, you know, it just seems like a smattering of ideas, maybe, for right now. Which I could totally buy into, for sure. Like, this is what, you know, when we were first beginning this podcast episode, I was asking you, like, before he put the lights on there, like, what was this? Like, what was he working on? Yeah, so I know I'm reaching a little bit deep into here, but I actually think it kind of works out because if we skip to the end, we're talking about how Chris is having this giant exhibition with the lights that he's now stolen from parts of the town and is now strung onto these uh, individual pieces. That itself becomes an art piece. Like the lights can't exist without the parts supporting it. But you would take the entire spectacle as one rather than pointing out each individual thing, which is yeah. to say that it's become an original work that stands on its own legs and uses the individual pieces. Yeah. He's being able to take this uh, smattering of ideas and use it as sort of a skeleton or as a foundation, the bones that hold up this image, this picture, this whole of. Uh, this miracle of just all these lights, you know? And it is obviously super um, enthralling, especially I could imagine for the townsfolk of Sicily who have been, you know, living in darkness for all of winter. That's sort of the whole uh, the whole thing that Chris is reaching for here is like, but we need more light. He, he begins in introducing this piece by quoting uh, Goethe, Goethe's final words more light. Right. And just to really hit home on this idea, Ruth Ann says that she's now painting sunflowers. Sunflowers overwhelmingly mean positivity. They can mean loyalty, longevity, and adoration. Passionate love and brilliance can come from it. And of course, it comes with light. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, speaking of Ruth Ann's paintings, uh, here, whenever you know everyone's gathering to check out the, uh, the sculpture, the art piece, uh, Ruth Ann bumps into Joel and she's uh, she's giving her painting to Joel for his office to decorate his office. That's really nice of her. The the one with the poppies, you know, that she's been working on. And um, Ed invites Joel for some ice fishing. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's in lieu of the vacation. It's not going to be as great, he says, but it'll be fun. It'll be a good time. And Joel seems pretty happy about that. Right. Uh, do you want to just talk about the last scene just as a whole? Yeah. Um, leading up to it, uh, we didn't talk about, it's not that, that big, but Holling does wake up from his hibernation and he's like very hungry. It's so hungry. In fact, that like 
Shelly will take food from other people in the brick and give it to Hauling. I mean, I guess Hauling <laughs> does own the brick, but it's kind of messed up. Like she takes their plates and Hauling just can't stop eating. And it's funny because, you know, we don't see Hauling very much in this episode. He's been hibernating, but we do see him again in this final scene as Shelly and Hauling are approaching. You know, Hauling's munching on some food. He's got probably food in both hands and Shelly's got like a bucket of potato salad that she's just scooping and feeding to him. <laughs> Uh, he's, I think he's like also in his robe the whole time. Like, it's just really funny. But, um, but yes, so that brings us to this final bit. I, I actually have the soundbite that it can play of Chris's little speech, and maybe we can comment on that. Goethe's final words, more light. Ever since we crawled out of that primordial slime, that's been our unifying cry, more light. Sunlight, torchlight, candlelight, neon, incandescent, light to... Banish the darkness from our caves to illuminate our roads, the insides of our refrigerators. Big floods for the night games at Soldier's Field. Little tiny flashlight for those books we read under the covers when we're supposed to be asleep. Light is more than watts and foot candles. Light is metaphor. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Arise, shine, for thy light has come. Light is knowledge. Light is life. Light is light. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Chris's monologue there. But I'm just thinking about like the practical uses of light. Like I really loved when Chris talks about, you know, light to uh, the big lights at the, you know, baseball stadium or the baseball diamond, you know, the light that you have on your flashlight when you're under the covers reading a book late at night, um, the light in your refrigerator. But I mean, think about like before electricity, just candles, you know? I think he even talks about like light to shun away the darkness, like in the primordial times. But I just, I find it fascinating that like, you know, the practical use of light is, you know, for our vision, but also like in a way for like any idea of human productivity, uh, especially before there was electricity. Like once the sun set, you were just like, well, I can't see anything. I guess I'll just go to bed <laughs> unless you had candles and you could like, cause you know, writers, painters, uh, and if you think about that as well, like uh, painters, you know, could paint in natural light um, or some uh, famous painters would even, you know, use unnatural lighting in their paintings. Like it'd be impossible for a light source to be coming from this direction, but it looks very beautiful. So they paint it that way. I don't know. That, that, that's something that just sparked to my mind. Right. I, I think that also plays into the theme of a uh, man kind of taking action into its own hand and going against nature. So instead of being underneath the control of nature, like like you said, like whenever the sun sets, productivity ends, it's now flipped. It's like, no, 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 no. I'll decide when yeah. I go to bed. And like, if I want to continue working, then I will produce my own light source and keep working. Yeah. And then of course he like kind of uh, underlines the power of the idea of light. You know, he uses a lot of different po poetry, you know, rage against the dying of the light. Uh, I can't remember the other. He like he lists off at least three, uh, I guess they're separate poems, but um, just like, you know, the poetical, the language surrounding like the power, the magic of light. There's even a, there's a sign that says light Schmidt beer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think he pulls like a, the, a neon sign from the brick at some point. Uh, you know, obviously he takes he takes Maggie's uh, 
lava lamp. I bet if you studied uh, that scene, you could find a lot of stuff. Uh, on the Moose Chick page for this episode, uh, that's moosechick.com, uh, there is a screenshot where you see part of this sculpture and they've uh, they've circled like one of the lampshades here is taken from uh, Lance's tent, you know? Like, so it's like, you see these lamps throughout the episode, which makes sense. I mean, they're, it's a movie, you know, it's a TV production. So they're using all, a lot of the same props. And for this scene, they've got to take pretty much all of the lights they have, I imagine, and then some, and then, and then put them there. But uh, I'd be interested to see if you could find like Maggie's lava lamp in there. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. Um, definitely speaking to, you know, what modern art can be. Uh, I am such a sucker for, is it Bocage? Oh, uh, Boca? Boca. Whenever you see like, yeah, the how's that spelled? Tiny colorful circles. It's, it's spelled weird, right? Yeah, it's kind of an odd word. B O K E H. Oh, okay, B O K E H. Right, right. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, it's whenever you see like the small little circles of colorful lights in the background of the subject. I, th- I think you can probably do it now on like any smartphone or like Instagram or something like that. I'm not entirely too sure, but I can, I can imagine it's there. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm really easy to place. I, I see that and I'm like, ooh, pretty shiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks beautiful. It's very, um, you know, especially with like when you have like sh- very shallow focus, I find that's like, that was a very common aesthetic for like indie films in like the late 2000s, uh, probably still today. I mean, it's very beautiful, but the bokeh that we were talking about, uh, it's like whenever a light is out of focus. So like usually um, whenever you have like a character in focus and the background is out of focus, if there's like string lights or something happening back there, it looks very beautiful, especially if they have different colors. Like they're very warm and soft and blurred. I wonder where that term comes from. The origin of the term, it's Japanese, bokeh, which means blur or haze. Very cool. What else can we say about this scene? The music that pumps in, like pretty much as soon as Chris turns the lights on, it's a uh, it's a song called Abu Day. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's Enya. Of course, it sounds very Enya like. I really like it. I think it's a really good fit here. Um, and it almost, you know, I know it's. Uh, I think Enya is like Celtic or something. Let me check. She's Irish. So maybe it has like some very traditional, the song, maybe it has some very traditional Irish chants and rhythms, but it also reminds me of like a very rhythmic chant that you might relate to like Native Americans. Of course, this is totally not that, but for some reason it just kind of hits the same notes for me. I really like it. It reminded me of that 90s song. I don't think we can play it at all, <laughs> but it's, 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 I, I, it's I know Anya, you're... right? You probably know Wait, what is it? Go ahead. It's the more is, is it? I thought you said Inya was the name of that song. Uh, Inya is the artist. Uh, that's yeah. Sorry, Inya is the artist that's playing. Is is he or she also the one that does like that? Da, 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 da. <laughs> you know what song I'm talking about? Yeah, it's I like, think so. Let me play it real fast. It's played like so all the time on called. the radio. It's called Only Time, I think. By who? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By Enya? Is it also by Enya? Yeah, Enya. Oh my god, it is. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's nailed um, it. Yeah, she has a very specific sound. Like that's why, you know, of course, this is Enya. It sounds very Enya. Uh, but yeah, that <laughs> you recognize it right off the bat. Yeah, but yeah, it's that can be cheesy, you know. And like you said, Charles, like that song that you're referring to, "Only Time." 
was played like overplayed and it's just a very, uh, I don't know, but for, for this situation, I think it fits very perfectly. It's kind of a very powerful atmosphere with the music and the lights and the music is like kind of echoing. It's uplifting sounding. Um, that's, it's a really good fit, I think. And especially, I guess, because this is the 90s. It's like, a, it's dead on. Yeah. <laughs> well, that song, it looks like it came out in 2000. The Well, yeah, the one that you're talking about, Only Time. Yeah. Um, did it come out in 2000 or is that when the video was posted? Uh, no, because the video here um, is from 2009, which is definitely not when it came out. But uh, no, I think you're right, right? Because that, yeah, that record came out in 2000. Wow. Feels like it would have been more '90s, right? But well, obviously, yeah, uh, yeah. obviously, the song featured in this episode came out uh, pre '93 because it's featured here. But uh, let's see, '91 was when uh, Abu Day, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, came out. All right, Charles, it's that point in our show when we invite on a guest, uh, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before, and we ask them to give us their thoughts, some feedback on the episode. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the idea of one, we want to introduce the show to a new audience, but also just get the perspective of sort of like a modern day take on Northern Exposure. The show is, you know, 30 years old. And um, in a way, we also want to see if the episode stands up on its own. So this person, having never seen the show, can give sort of an out of context point of view. Uh, our guest today is my good friend, Mason. I knew him first as an actor, but he's also a playwright, a writer, an educator, uh, just, you know, all around artist and, you know, I guess someone who I would am curious to hear their opinion on film and TV. So let's see what Mason thinks about this episode. All right. So um, to preface, uh, I'm the kind of person who ums and uhs a lot if I'm just allowed to ramble. So I've composed my thoughts in a note and I'm just going to read that. So I've just watched the episode and immediately sorted out my thoughts. So these are all fresh. Some first uh, initial observations. Uh, from the first moment, I love the music, and I continue to enjoy that throughout the episode. The, uh, the very 90s jazz woodwinds are probably having a nostalgic effect on me. <laughs> um, I like Bernard's eloquent radio voiceovers. They seem to function well as transitional devices throughout the episode, too. I also really enjoyed in an early scene how quickly Bernard thinks aloud to rationalize Bristol's preference for the term hobo. Uh, that was a great character moment for Bernard, I thought. I also noticed immediately the almost aggressive agreeableness of everyone in the town. Even later, when Mike is serving Joel, he is exceedingly polite. Joel himself is an exception to this, so I gathered he is probably not a local, maybe not from Alaska at all. In the classic comedic, straight, absurd dynamic. The way he reacts to Mike in this scene sets him up as the straight man to the town's absurd friendliness. In fact, it was for this reason that, not having looked up the show at all beforehand, I thought it was definitely set in Canada for about the first 20 minutes. The unrelenting friendliness, I think, is generally a Canadian stereotype, but of course it makes sense that the same would, be, would apply to uh, Alaskans. On the subject of this agreeableness, uh, a major theme of this episode seems to be the dark underbelly of their overtly friendly culture. 
they treat Joel pretty ruthlessly for a very reasonable strike on his part. It kind of makes me dislike the townspeople, actually, for how they refuse to back him on his vacation time. And the way this plot is resolved is not really a resolution at all of the real ideological conflict. He just bends under the immense pressure with which they hold him hostage. Uh, so I wonder if the show explores this theme further in other episodes. The uh, Maurice Bristol subplot, on the other hand, I think is a lot more characteristically heartwarming of shows like this. It's a classic story of a close-minded traditionalist who has to confront a contradiction, which in this case is the fact that Bristol is both a marine and a self-proclaimed hobo. And, uh, and he's forced to broaden his understanding and compassion for a human on a different path in life. To be fair, this conflict isn't perfectly resolved either. Maurice never really accepts Bristol's chosen lifestyle, and in their final scene together, he still encourages Bristol to reintegrate into society. In that scene, I also thought it was interesting that Bristol's UFO experience uh, mentioned lights, of course, in an episode titled Northern Lights, uh, and of course, followed by Chris's monologue about light and his light-up art installation. So the writers wove that uh, light theme in with intention. Uh, it's apparent. Uh, speaking of Chris, um, do I buy him as an artist? I think with his sculpture concerns in the beginning of the episode when he quotes Gertrude Stein, he sounds authentic. Again, good on the writers. But the actor, in my opinion, is like too obviously an actor with the perfectly sculpted jaw to really take seriously as the eccentric artist. I'm thinking maybe he was cast to hit the uh, hit the market similar to an Uncle Jesse as a kind of cool heartthrob with some emotional depth, which I think was very in. I also think of an older Sean Hunter, a personal favorite TV character of mine. Anyway, back to Bristol. I was looking for a thematic connection between his plot and the A-plot with Joel, and I think, uh, like Joel learns to swim with the tide, Maurice wants Bristol to do the same, as he says, when faced with the inexplicable, the sane man forgets. In the case of Joel, the inexplicable that he is faced with uh, seems to be the town's obstinacy and ruthlessness. Um, anyway, my final uh, general observation was the somewhat quick pace with which the show moves from scene to scene. The scenes feel short on average, and they're pretty rapidly juxtaposed. I liked a lot of the characters, and I want to get to know them better. Having just watched this one episode, I think my favorite character is Ed. Uh, he speaks with an innocence and directness that is really endearing. I also love that he's a fan of the movie To Sir With Love. <laughs> uh, I think perhaps Joel in some way is the Sidney Poitier role of this show. Anyway, my favorite scene is when Ed serves as Joel's proxy at the town meeting. I love the earnestness and adroitness with which Ed speaks on Joel's behalf at the meeting. He takes every question so confidently. Uh, though he may stutter a bit. And everybody in the room accepts the equivalence of him as Joel so completely. I, I just thought it was a really charming scene. Uh, Marilyn is my second favorite character. Uh, she seems like such a truthful, quiet observer of the show's events, not unlike the audience itself, and perhaps she's an ethical touchstone for other characters or for the audience, something like a Greek chorus, maybe. Um, she speaks with the same kind of innocent directness that Ed does, and I wonder if this is a characteristic of Native Alaskan peoples the show wishes to portray. I'm not sure if Ed has Native American genes, but it seems possible. A few things that were odd or remarkable uh, out of context. First off, does Maggie kill her boyfriends or something? Her conversation with Ruth Ann early in the episode was bizarre. 
<laughs> um, next, I think it would be fun if the show never explained how Bernard and Chris are brothers, but I expect it probably does to this explanation. Um, I think it would be, I would be most interested if they shared a parent, but that's not really consequential. Um, next, uh, why is chocolate so central to the cafe? I laughed out loud at this exchange um, where Shelley, I think, says, uh, uh, you want any chocolate with this? And Ruthann replies, just a little on the English muffin. <laughs> Again, really uh, uh, absurd um, qualities in this town. And finally, I love the song, When the Lights Come On at the End. It effectively creates this sense of wonder and beauty of the moment, um, as well as the community of the town, as the beat of the song is sort of tribal, and these people seem very connected and familial. And you can put Inya in anything, as far as I'm concerned, and it will make the scene work. Uh, to answer y'all's question, have I ever felt stuck in a situation that caused me to change for the better? Um, I went through that classic move back home in your mid-twenties phase. I worked in a restaurant, I gained a lot of weight, started chain-smoking cigarettes. Uh, I had actually left home originally at age 15, so coming back almost 10 years later, it felt even further to fall in that way. Um, this period lasted almost a year for me, and parts of it were definitely pretty miserable, but uh, ultimately I think I benefited from waiting tables, I developed some close bonds as one does in that industry. And it also gave me the opportunity to get in touch with my hometown as an adult, which I had never done before. Um, even something as simple as driving around the town I grew up in was a really novel experience for me at age 23, 24. So anyway, um, those are my thoughts and reactions to Northern Lights. Um, this was fun, and I do like the show, so thanks. Uh, P.S., a question for y'all. Do you think this show could have been a major influence on Schitt's Creek or even Parks and Recreation? All right, that was Mason with his guest commentary right there. Looks like he had a lot to say. Uh, I really like the detailness that he's going in with this. Uh, let's start off by talking about him with Bernard with the hobo. I like that he picked up on that characterization of Bernard. He was kind enough to let Lance define himself with his own terms. Yeah, he pointed out Bernard's voiceover, Bernard's sort of uh, character. Uh, th the fact that Bernard sort of reacted in that way to Lance Bristol uh, the terminology of hobo was really telling for Bernard's character, at least uh, for Mason. And uh, I want to point out to Mason that uh, typically Chris is sort of this uh, this narrator on the radio. He's sort of the voice there uh, usually. But when Bernard is in town uh, and Chris has other things to do, Bernard will sub in oftentimes for Chris. And uh, you you mentioned, Mason, that Chris and Bernard are brothers. Uh, how are they brothers? Well, there's an early episode when Bernard arrives in town, I guess almost as if following a dream or something, and he ends up in Sicily, Alaska, and uh, he hits it off with Chris. They have very similar personalities. Uh, they end up hanging out a lot, uh, philosophizing a lot, and it turns out they share a dream that indicates they are, you know, both of the same father. Like they're both in each other's dream and they both have sort of this like typical, uh, you know, childhood, my father doesn't accept me dream, except they're both having it at the same time. And it's like, what are you doing in my dream? This is my, uh, I wish my father loved me dream. And Chris is, you know, they're just like sitting there together and they both wake up in reality and uh, they just instantly know it. You know, they know that they're somehow... Related and it checks out. I think uh, it turns out that Chris and Bernard's father was a traveling man. 
Yeah, he uh, traveled all around, fathered a lot of children right there. <laughs> and like you said, Chris is usually the radio DJ of the town, which is, I guess, maybe might make Mason a little bit more disappointed because he was already disappointed that Chris was uh, uh, too conventionally handsome to be an artist. Yeah, Chris is too sexy to be an artist, uh, though I do like that Mason uh, sort of typecast him like the, the Uncle Jesse type, the cool heartthrob with emotional depth which I think does kind of apply to Chris. Uh, one thing that may not be apparent in this episode is that Chris is sort of an ex-con. He, <laughs> I actually don't remember the full history of it, but you know, like he fled Virginia uh, and uh, he had sort of a tarnished reputation or or I should say like he, you know, did time. Uh, he was a criminal and he moved to Alaska and sort of is now just this jack of all trades artist, uh, bohemian type, I guess. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask, uh, Sean Hunter. I didn't catch that. So yeah, that's boy meets world, right? Oh, uh, okay. Let me see. Yeah. I'm actually, that's kind of a blind spot for me. Let's see. Oh, it's spelled with S H A W N. Yeah. I was spelling S H. Oh, same. I was spelling, spelling it the same. Sean Hunter is the character, uh, from boy meets world played by, uh, writer strong, writer strong is his name. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. I never knew that guy's name. Yeah, uh, I watched a lot of Boy Meets World whenever I was uh, growing up. That might have been like my first like real television show in that like it wasn't cartoons. Like, it had like real actors and live stuff. action. Yeah, so, yeah. So I was watching uh, a lot of that one right there. Yeah, Boy Meets World was a real blind spot for me. Uh, I never really watched it, and I had a lot of friends in college who were super nostalgic for it, and. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I'm very nostalgic for a lot of shows. I guess Northern Exposure is probably one of them. But uh, yeah, I, I just always felt so outcast or so weird for never having seen that show. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's where I learned like uh, to uh, not drink and drive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A little bit of sex ed in there. Um, I just learned like a lot of life lessons in that in that television series. Uh, I think he made a good deduction by saying that Joel was new in the town. I thought that was really wise of him to pick up on that because of the townsfolk's aggressive agreeableness. Yeah, I wrote that down too, aggressive agreeableness. I thought that was a great um, encapsulation, just a great representation of what's going on here. Uh, Mason said he thought originally it might have been in Canada. Uh, of course, the show's in Alaska. He, he picked up on that. But um, just, you know, like the stereotypical Canadian friendliness, kindness, or agreeableness. Um, but I thought it was interesting he pointed out a dark underbelly of this friendly culture, you know, that everyone is so nice, but when it comes to uh, this lawsuit, everyone is against Joel. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, it seems that Mason was, um, you know, Mason had some empathy or sympathy. I always get those uh, confused. Empathy is when you like you've directly have also had the same experience, and sympathy is like that, but not with the same experience. So Sy it's sympathy, yeah. unless Mason actually has yeah. been to a town <laughs> in which he got <laughs> yeah some sympathy. Which for I Joel. can't rule that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming sympathy, Mason, for Joel, uh, because Charles, you and I were talking about that. Like, you know, we were curious to see if our guest would think of Joel as an obnoxious aggressive person, uh, which of course he is, but he's also our protagonist. Um, but this underbelly, I thought it was interesting because, you know, I see it, I see that as a sort of an underlying idea for this episode, um, sort of the, the twist that, you know, what you thought was friendly is actually 
kind of um, backstabbing in a way. But I think it also, something I think you maybe pointed out in in our discussion, Charles, was uh, how similar this sort of um, reaction to a homeless person is sort of like, of course, we uh, inwardly, we think that we would be caring and supportive and uh, altruistic, you know, in our, in our best behavior. But in reality, everyone, no one really sees homeless people or we try to ignore it, you know? So it's sort of that, uh, I like the comparisons that this episode indirectly draws between Joel and Bristol, like Joel and being homeless. Uh, in fact, you know, Joel does sort of take Bristol's place during the episode. Uh, I think it's interesting that each individual townsfolk is acting on their own reason for wanting to sue Joel rather than all agreeing on one reason. So the individual sums are all acting in different interests, but they all come together to make one whole. Yeah. Uh, Shelley even says, like, I'm being a team player, all for one and one for all. Yeah. And at the end of it, Joel gives in to the tide and he decides to swim with it. So he has now become a part of the sum of the whole. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joel has his own reason for <laughs> agreeing with them. To, you know, like they all, that's interesting. They all have their own sort of motivations, but it it unites them. Mason also pointed out, you know, sort of the idea, something you brought up, Charles, how a lot of these uh, plot lines seem to have little resolution in the end, specifically with like the Maurice and the Bristol plot line. In the end, Maurice doesn't really uh, truly accept Bristol, he's, he wants Bristol to do what Joel does, you know, like conform. And, and uh, I think I pointed out during our discussion, Charles, that Joel was like this close, very close to being Bristol, to being a homeless person, but uh, or a hobo, I guess, however we term it. Um, you know, th- th- they're very similar characters, but Joel chooses one direction. Uh, and it feels, doesn't feel like a quite a great resolution, but... Uh, I think the actor sells it and and Bristol chooses another direction. And and of course that also doesn't feel like a great resolution, but, uh, but, but that's what we got. uh, Yeah. Yeah. How crazy would it be if like this show wasn't like a sitcom series, like it was real life (laughs) and Joel was, he was like really dedicated to his resolve. So basically someone went to Alaska because they had to fulfill like a contractual obligation and then they became homeless and then they (laughs) lost their job. (laughs) <laughs> it becomes like a uh yeah more of like an ethical uh show you know i don't know drama where they're fighting like this uh a state of alaska these unethical practices yeah that, that would be truly the darkest timeline i guess <laughs> oh man well mason's favorite scene in this entire episode is the town hall scene he was particularly taken in with how ed was the um what is that uh uh, like the, the mouthpiece, the, uh, the interim. Yeah, the mouthpiece, like the puppet. Who was that famous puppeteer? Hang on, I can find it. Oh, so it was Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen. Edgar Bergen being the ventriloquist and Charlie McCarthy being the dummy that he would control. So in this scenario, Ed was Charlie. Oh, got it. What What are these in pop culture? Like, how do we know these names? Uh, really deep pop culture cut right here. Uh, they're probably... <laughs> You'd probably know them from the old radio television show, The Chase and Sanborn Hour. Um, I think it became The Chase and Sanborn Program, which then became The Charlie McCarthy Show. But basically, it was like a variety <laughs> television show on CBS that aired in like the freaking 50s. <laughs> Got it. That's awesome. Yeah, that is an amazing scene. I think the funniest part for Mason was how the townsfolk just accept this. They're totally in with this bit, 
Like they they agree to the bit and they commit to it and they're just like, yeah, this is Joel. They're speaking to Ed as if this is Joel. A couple of things that Mason pointed out that I don't think we touched on during the episode, how Bristol talks about sort of his, uh, I, he doesn't say UFO, but sort of like his, uh, his UFO sighting, you know? Uh, he mentions lights, you know, this, uh, this ties into, you know, this sort of motif throughout the episode and the title of the episode, Northern Lights. There's a lot of uh, mention of light and also just like we obviously at the end, we see all these lights in, in Chris's sculpture. Um, and then the other thing that Mason talked about that we didn't touch on was uh, this movie, To Sir With Love, which Ed describes. It's like a Sidney Poitier film where Sidney Poitier plays like this inner city teacher who uh, busts his ass, you know, like teaching uh, maybe like in very hard circumstances. And uh, he's offered a job at some prestigious school, but he turns it down because he's uh, maybe constructed like such a strong network of friends and students that he cares about that he chooses to stay at this uh, inner city school. You know, that's, that's kind of like what Joel is, you know, of course that's what Ed is like trying to draw the line through, but we do feel like from the first episode of the show, Charles, that Joel like wants to escape Alaska. And as the show goes on, he's either trapped there or slowly begins to take root. Yeah. I don't, I've never seen this, sir, with love. Uh, it, was that one of like the uh, first movies to show like a teacher connecting with inner city <laughs> youth by using like uh, like rap as a connection to Shakespeare or something? It does sound like, you know, that is a trope. Um, it was a 1967 film. Yeah, I don't know where this trope originated. Um, it does seem like I'm always curious to see where these where the trope starts, but. This must be this must be a popular film if uh Ed is referencing it. Um they they made a sequel, made for TV sequel, and uh it came out three decades later, nearly three decades later, with Sidney Poitier reprising his starring role. So Wait, he came back? So I, I would be curious to know about the sequel. Is it like, you know, does Sidney Poitier teach at the same school for 30 years? Oh wow, the sequel was directed by Peter Bogdanovich. That's kind of crazy. Wow, I wonder if it's any good. It looks interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what if it is good? <laughs> yeah, it seriously might be. Uh, the original directed by James Clavell. Uh, honestly, I can't, can't tell you much about this guy. Let, let's get back to Mason's uh, commentary. So he also uh, described Marilyn as the Greek chorus type. That's pretty interesting. I think that's... Uh, that there's some truth to that. Um, both Marilyn and Ed and typically like the native American characters in the show often speak wisdom with like very few words. Like they use metaphor or simple phrases, simple uh, perspectives that have sort of like a heavier quality. Yeah. I actually didn't think about Marilyn being the Greek chorus. I think she is effective in being that in certain episodes, but otherwise she's almost, um, too emotionally lacking like she gives like simple answers but oftentimes at least from my understanding of the greek chorus is that they need to convey the information of what's happening to the audience and like having a like a communication with them right there so oftentimes they can take an all-around mood whereas marilyn kind of plays the same note yeah it's true she's very monotone uh but also like kind of deadpan you know 
Uh, so it, it doesn't uh, translate a whole lot of emotion necessarily. Though, you know, there is, uh, I think what, what really works with Marilyn and, and with, you know, Native Ameri- the Native American characters here is sort of like the poetry in there in their language. But, uh, but yeah, oftentimes it's pretty, it's pretty short, curt. Uh, one thing I never really thought about, but that Mason brought up was, uh, the pacing of the scenes in this episode felt like there were just a lot of short scenes. You know, I, I want to try to think about that a little more as we go further. I do think that this show does have a lot of short scenes. There's a lot of intercutting, with uh, different storylines. You know, typically we have like three plot lines, usually, sometimes more. Um, But there are episodes I can think of that do have much longer drawn out scenes. I'm thinking specifically of scenes with like intentional pauses where there's like intentional silence. So that's obvious to to note. But, but, you know, there are some episodes with long scenes. I think it would be important for us to uh, draw attention to that if we ever find a scene that uh, is particularly long, I guess, in comparison to the other scenes. And to answer some of your questions, Mason, you asked, does Maggie kill her boyfriends? Yes, there is a running plot where Maggie is, uh, all of her ex-boyfriends have died. Um, Usually uh, in some inexplicable way, though, sometimes I guess it's more normal than others. I believe one froze to death while hiking, like while climbing a mountain. One was hit by a satellite a falling satellite uh, from outer space, not like, you know, satellite dish uh, on the top of your house. Another died from uh, (laughs) food poisoning from potato salad. I can't remember all of them. Maybe there was like a car wreck. I think she has maybe totaling five, Um, but that is a thing. Now, I guess Joel is added to this this list. Yeah, uh, though, I guess like the smart response would be like, well, everyone she sleeps with will die. Yeah, I mean, every everyone will die. Everyone dies, uh, but yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, but yeah, it has been revisited quite often. Like, there's an episode where she has like a fever dream and she's visited by all her dead boyfriends. In fact, uh, the boyfriend that was like hit by a falling satellite that happened that was like one of the season finale episodes, where like one of a, a, a running character from like the first two seasons is killed by a falling satellite. It seems to be a big deal with uh, with this with Maggie, and then the final question I, I had written down from you was, uh, why is chocolate so central to the brick? Uh, it's actually not. It turns out it was just this episode. I think Bernard had some sort of uh, some sort of line early on where he says like, you can go to the brick to get some chocolate because it's a mood elevator. I think they're serving chocolate because of the uh, unending darkness that's uh, very depressive to the townsfolk and the chocolate's supposed to lift your mood, I suppose. But I think that's funny that, uh, taken out of context, you might suspect that the brick is known for its chocolate, that this is a common occurrence. This is a common theme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely to raise the serotonin levels right there. Um, <laughs> I, does the brick have anything going for it where it's like, it's a specialty, like a gimmick. Well, they do have uh, the signs in there that say spaghetti feed. And uh, I think it's, yeah, in this episode, uh, Shelly says, like, we're going to give Joel, like, five or, like, a free spaghetti dinner. I don't know what the number she says. Is it, like, a few? I think it's only, like, two. Yeah, I think it's only two. Much it's less just than not five. that great. Yeah, because I said five, and then I wanted to walk it back. I think you're right. Two free spaghetti dinners. So that's a thing. Uh yeah, I guess apart from that, I would just suspect like Moose Burger, Caribou Dog, uh, but there's no 
typical special. I think they really, uh, I guess breakfast, you know, I've seen a lot of food at the brick, but uh, special, I don't know. And Mason answered our question about being in an unknown area, coming out a little bit better, a little bit wiser for the course. Uh, he said that he moved back home in his mid-20s, something that we all usually can identify with. Uh, you know, usually post-college, you get to see your hometown, you see all the new buildings that they built, uh, maybe even see some that got demolished. It's a really strange sensation. Um, in our hometown, uh, they, they, they built a, a roundabout, on a yeah. popular road that like still freaks me out uh, whenever I see that one. I think this is a uh, this is very important talking about like returning to your hometown as an adult. Now, now Mason said he uh, left home or he left his hometown when he was like fifteen. Now, Charles, you and I le- left for like our college age. That would probably be closer to like eighteen, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, but still, like returning back home after like four years of college or even during college, but after that. I got to like really experience our hometown as sort of like an adult, which is something that Mason points out. And uh, Charles, we come from like a really small or a small town. I would call it a really small town, though. I guess I know some people who come from even smaller towns, but uh, we come from a small town. And I remember leaving our hometown, just feeling like I've like, this is the actual, this is the outside world. This is like the real world, you know, and kind of like having maybe some disdain for, uh, the town in which we grew up, you know, it's, it's just doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to offer compared to, you know, these bigger cities that we moved to. Um, but I don't know, there was something about like returning, uh, as an adult where you can really see and appreciate, you know, Charles, we know we've talked about, we're from Louisiana, like, uh, returning to home for me was sort of like reacquainting myself with Cajun music, stuff like that. Like whenever we grew up, this just seems really corny and like just cheesy, but there is, uh, there's so much culture there and really great music. Not only that, um, just like going to a bar in your hometown, that was something oh we never did as kids. We would just like hang out at Walmart or the 24-7 diner. We could never go to bars. <laughs> but sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, th- those are the worst. Th- those, uh, <laughs> okay, showing up at like your hometown bar on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving <laughs> is like one of the worst sensations. Like uh, the, the people that you don't want to be with and people on that bar on that Wednesday are a circle, <laughs> a separate circle on a Venn diagram. They do not touch. Like, well, I, I was going to uh, say, um, I actually totally agree with you. I was going to say it was fun to do that because like you get to experience your hometown as an adult who can like drive around is something Mason said, who can order a beer, who can like go to all these places that you are never granted access to. But I think you're also right. Like running into uh, people from high school Wait, that you on, don't want to see. Yeah. <laughs> It's one, it's one circle. Yeah, I just oh. used a Venn diagram analogy. Oh, it's one sorry. Circle. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, a, the Venn yeah, diagram sorry. is just, it's, it's not, it's overlapping entirely. It's 100%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it still works, I'm I sorry, what did you say? No, I was just saying that, uh, I was actually saying like how, how fun it was, but I do also totally agree with you that it is, uh, you don't want to like run into someone from high school that you don't want to see and that, that would often happen, especially because we live in such a small town. Yeah, it was like a really odd sensation because we came from such a small town and because we came from Louisiana, which uh, as, as much as we love the state, it, it, it's, you know, it's not exactly like up there in terms of like education. Exactly, yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah and all that. No, I do also think, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to describe here and now, but 
there there is something that I feel like as a as a kid I never respected. Uh, and of course, you're a kid and you don't understand. But as I grew older, these things that I thought were boring or uninteresting uh, started to take on a lot of value because one, because of nostalgia and two, because uh, just because you can have more of an open mind and uh, try to understand like what all this culture meant. As a kid, you're, you're not really analyzing that maybe, but when you're thinking about it as an adult, there is so much culture. Uh, I just, you know, I'm very proud to be from Louisiana. Uh, whereas like in high school, I was probably like, get me out of here. I want to get to a bigger city. The things you mentioned, right. like low education. Uh, it's very unhealthy, just, you know, politically corrupt. Uh, it's just a lot of bad things, but I, we, we made the, it made the news, uh, this year, <laughs> I think a lot, often, year often, but, but yeah, but oftentimes it makes the news, but yeah, this very recently, but it was not for a positive reason. It like was, the, the we were like a hot spot for COVID. The, oh, that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Enough about that. I want to move on to Mason's last, uh, question for us at the end of his, uh, recording. He said, do you think Northern Exposure could have been a major influence on Schitt's Creek or even Parks and Rec? I have to admit, those are also blind spots for me. So I texted you, Charles, kind of immediately after I heard this and was asking you, uh, like, because I, uh, I I heard the synopsis for uh, Schitt's Creek. I guess I've seen a couple episodes of Parks and Rec, and I heard the synopsis of Schitt's Creek. I can see the comparison of, like, small town vibes with uh, – sort of fish out of water feeling, but you had some interesting thoughts on this. So, so, so yeah. What do you think to that question, Charles? Uh, my answer is that if it did, it did it very indirectly in that Northern exposure would have influenced one show, which then influenced another show, which then influenced Parks and Recreation or Schitt's Creek. I don't think that it's like a linear transaction where like Northern exposure directly influenced either of those two shows. Uh, the reason being that like, I mean, they're almost like 30 year gaps at this point. And also I'm pretty sure that parks and recreation was pitched as a like West wing, except for small local government and stupider. Uh, I think that was uh, (laughs) Greg Daniels and Mike Schur's pitched NBC. (laughs) I can, like you said, I can see the comparison between the two because they're with, uh, small towns folks, but I think Northern exposure is a little bit more out there. If I can yeah, say that. That's true. Like, yeah. More magical uh, realism. Like slightly, more, uh, right. Yeah. Just, just like, Oh, I don't know. A lot more just, um, excursions into different like ideas and, and thoughts. But, um, it's interesting to think that maybe you could trace this all the way back to Northern exposure. I think I might agree with you, Charles, but I haven't seen the shows, but you know, the Northern exposure, maybe, uh, laid some of the groundwork. It, it might not be a strong influencer, uh, but maybe maybe there's uh, some groundwork that Northern Exposure set and these other shows maybe rose from that. So that does it for Mason's commentary. Mason, thank you so much for watching this episode, taking the time to form your thoughts and give us such great commentary on this episode, such great analysis. And we'd love to have you on again Hopefully you get to watch another episode of the show at some point. It seems like you liked it. But Charles, we're going to be back next week talking about the 19th episode in season four. It's called Family Feud. Uh, Family Feud, do you have any guesses for what this episode might be? 
Uh, I'm going to guess it's not the one that's hosted by Steve Harvey. Yeah. Uh, which I, I recently found out he had only taken over since 2010. I, I thought he had been here since the 90s. I, I don't know. I don't know why I was thinking that. It's more recent developments, I guess. I'm guessing just like, I mean, just going from the title, it's like some sort of entanglement between a family, maybe within the same family. The, the, the only family I can think of is uh, Maggie's family and Ed's family. I think those are the only families that have been introduced. And Ed's family, quote unquote, is like the entire tribe. So yeah. that's uh, really all I got for you. Yeah, I think you're not far off. I think that's a great subject for an episode, sort of uh, family fighting, family feud, obviously. Um, there's a lot of stuff. It could be a lot of things that, uh, I think will be wrapped into this idea for next episode, but we'll talk about that next week. Charles, thanks for potting with me. Yeah. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Mason for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.